Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. If you aren't already, please go to combatlearning.com slash newsletter to get my intro to motor learning for martial arts PDF so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing in the show. You'll also get my cheat sheet for representative learning design, which is a big, another big topic that we discuss on the show. And this is going to help you take your drills to the next level so that you can make them way more effective. Plus, you'll never miss an episode. That's combatlearning.com slash newsletter. Today, I'm joined again by Greg Koval, a sixth Don in Taekwondo and owner of Devil Dog Martial Arts. In this episode, Greg and I catch up from when he first appeared on Combat Learning. Since then, Greg has taken the constraints-led approach and overhauled his entire curriculum to great success. We also talk about training terminology and other problems going on in the Taekwondo training world. If you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and enjoy the show. You know, we were just talking about this before we started like officially taping, I guess, for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I I like training methodology stuff. Um, This is a thing that I think you and I see very eye to eye on. So anything that you send me, I'm always open to. Yeah, it's not groundbreaking it's what it is is all it is is what i intend to do is this the the start of several papers to summarize and then create a framework for codifying a constraints-led approach to taekwondo and um or kickboxing because it's you could it's interchangeable yeah let's just say striking but for my purposes it's it's taekwondo because i that's what i know sure. that's what i'm ranked in so it's the beginning of it it's nothing that you necessarily would agree with it's basically an exercise to help anyone new to the space or anything like that to actually just learn what the typical terms are in the literature and okay. the the reason for that is um just because some of the terms that we use regularly as martial arts aren't as clear and uh they're, yeah, they're hard to use. Targeted martial arts can be a little bit. Yeah. Everyone has their own. They mean something different by what they say. And some people just make up their own words, which is not necessarily wrong, but you know, that well, means, sometimes it's a kind of a pain in the ass. Like it, I mean, can, it can people, be. Yeah. I've had people debate with me. They're like, you're not doing a roundhouse kick. You're doing a round kick. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like, yeah. That's idiosyncratic. Like when people say that most people mean roundhouse and round kick to mean functionally the same, but some people, they come from one school where they, they have one. In, on yeah. When they have one instructor, that's like, you know what? This is a round kick. And there's just one little detail that's missing. And this is a round house kick. And then there's that detail present. And then the person goes into the world thinking that everyone talks that way. It's, I agree. it's ridiculous, but and it's an issue with a lot of instructors. And part of it is also mm-hmm. like, so I know part of it in the terminology came from when you have a lot of instructors who came from Korea and English is a second language. And yeah. so they translate things and the translation is sometimes a little bit different. Um, and yeah. so people hear terms that they're a little mm-hmm. bit different and then they don't understand like, look, this is this guy translating it from Korean who may or may not have been that great at English to begin with. And yeah. so you run into um, a confusion and then people take this as like gospel because, you know, you know, I've talked about before where 
sometimes people look at their instructors as more than just human and <laughs> yeah. more problems than it's worth. Yep. Yeah. The te- training, uh, I, I call it a training taxonomy basically, but yeah. a taxonomy is really important to have like a, an accepted, like, like in biology or whatever, you know, it's, it's important to have a common taxonomy or at least a, a vocabulary to talk about it. If there is conflict between them, um, because otherwise you're just going to be talking past each other and you're also going to get stuck in these walls of text. And like, if you have to explain what you mean by a word, every time you use it to remind all the people present, mm-hmm. like communication just can't happen. And it's like, like you said, a well, Korean comes here and uses a Korean term. The goal needs to be whenever you talk about like taxonomy and stuff like that, like the goal should always be to have a better communication. So like, I'll give you an example. So like I just got done watching the John Danaher leg lock series and he talks mm-hmm. about scooping versus an underhook. Mm-hmm. And he calls them different things because when he's coaching, he needs to be able to be clear about what he's saying mm-hmm. and say like, look, I say scooping. So it means this to them and say underhook. So it means this. And I need something I can yeah. quickly communicate. Yeah. But he's not doing this to add more jargon. He's doing it no. to simplify his coaching. Yeah. And if you happen to pick it up, that's fine. And he goes like, look, yes, this is an underhook, but it's also, I call it scooping because I can clarify my coaching. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that like these instructors, like they just want to add terms because they want to differentiate and it's okay, but they need to clarify that like, look, these are both roundhouses, but I call this one, this, and I call this one, this, because I want to clarify for my coaching. Mm-hmm. Not an excuse for you to go jump on everybody that you see. Who calls yeah, it what what you do internally, there's no moral issue whatsoever with having your own because there's something going on in your mind that you want to communicate more clearly to your students, and there's probably a good, there's probably uh, you know a good case to be made that whatever it is that you've, the reason why you've differentiated these two things that are similar, there might be. A, a good reason for you doing that. The, the problem is when you go out into the world and then you tell somebody uh, that you're, that this, you know, this taxonomy that you've made up is makes other people wrong, but the, 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 that doesn't make any sense because um, you, you are the, you're the one that actually made that up. You didn't teach these other people. And there's no functional reason why you should do that other than some concept that you have, but other people think about things in different concepts and sure. doesn't make them wrong. What makes them wrong is if you teach something and it just doesn't ever, you know, happen. Like you, you, you can't, like, it's not functional in a fight or, or whatever. That's what makes them wrong is how you talk about it and classify it. You could do as many ways you want. <laughs> people in martial arts are really big on classification and jargon. Like that's a thing that man, just people just like, there's a couple areas of martial arts that people get really hyper-focused on. Yeah. Another one is history. Uh I see a lot of like the martial arts history guys that I'm like, I roll my eyes at them because I'll be honest, I don't care about like, like I just saw this thing recently that somebody was giving me a hard time because they were saying, well, Taekwondo doesn't have karate roots. It all roots in Taekyong. And I'm Ugh. like, okay, look, if you want to believe that that's fine, but you got to understand a lot of the reason that Taekwondo masters and grandmasters say that I'm going to be honest, it comes down to some kind of latent racism that goes back to old Koreans who are still mad at the Japanese because of genocide. It's not a bad reason to be mad at the Japanese if you're yeah. Korean. I get yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah. if you're trying to deny any karate roots based on that, like, like, but here's the thing, like, then people like want to get in these whole historical arguments. 
And I'm like, fine, you win. I, I don't care about the history of Taekwondo. I'm going to be totally honest. I don't <laughs> care about it at all. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of aspects. Like if you want to like debate with me on the roots of this form or something like that, okay, you win. I don't care. That's not yeah. why I do Taekwondo. I don't do Taekwondo to teach Korean. I had some girl yell at me about the way that I was pronouncing my uh, numbers when I was counting on my videos. She's like, your Korean is terrible. I was like, nice. I don't care. Good. Don't care at all. I hope I like my students don't know the difference. Yeah. I worked for, I worked for a Korean and um, he, uh, at, at first I thought I was like, this is sick, dude. I get to work for this Korean Taekwondo master. This is crazy. Yeah. I was very young at that point. And um, he, uh, he, he soon outwore his welcome in in my mind and uh, he would say things like this is korea you have to do this and that um he was he was like when you talk about like sometimes people say things like you know americans are culturally insensitive and whatever and um he he would do and say things that uh in in contradiction to for example when he knew that i was being polite according to the culture that i was raised in he didn't care. He, if I didn't do it, the, the, something, a Korean way, it would, it would rub him the wrong way. And that's when at, at that point it was kind of a red pill for me. I was like, you know what? Screw you. This yeah. is not Korea. And, and I'm a citizen thing, here and you're not. If I'm so. in your house, I, I look at this way. If I'm in your house, I will absolutely adhere to your culture. I mean, I spent time overseas. Like, yeah. you know, when I was overseas in Okinawa and stuff like that, Absolutely. I do as much as I can to be as culturally sensitive as possible. Yeah. Way more than most other Marines. In fact, Marines yeah. are the worst when you put them overseas. Like they're just <laughs> like, cause they don't care. They're like, all yeah. I want to do is drink and see boobs. Right. And they don't care about anything beyond that. Yeah. Whereas for me, like I was actually trying to like experience culture. I was trying to like, like assimilate into their way of living, not uh-huh. force them to mind. Yeah. But when you talk about Taekwondo in the U S I don't care. Like, yeah. I don't feel like I need to speak Korean. Like I've known guys that I've trained with that. They're like, I got to start learning Korean. I'm like, why? Yeah. You don't, you really don't need to like in Korea. It doesn't like it's from Korea originally. And there's a, there's a cultural aspect where we still, there's some, there's a little bit of etiquette and there's a little bit of like the uniform, whatever, if you want to observe that, that's cool. It's like an identity, but um, like, fencing is like was codified in france right and obviously fencing is older than that and it's shared yeah. by europe but like fencing as it's practiced today they still use french terms and all that I kind of stuff. ballet use a lot of french terms because of roots and yeah. stuff like that but. it's not french anymore okay yeah. taekwondo is not korean anymore it belongs to everyone brazilian jiu-jitsu there's a discussion on jiu-jitsu times most of the stuff comes out of there's trash but this is a good discussion that is jiu-jitsu belongs to the world now it's everywhere everyone does it korea does it and you have innovators in the U.S., you have innovators in Australia, in Europe, everywhere. And, um, you know, it's, we can, if you want to call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whatever, most people just call it Jiu-Jitsu now, but it's not, Brazilians don't own it anymore. It's, it's not a yeah. cultural export. There's a anymore. lot of people who are trying, I think, at this point, start to separate, like, like the Gracie Baja stuff versus, like, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu versus the American Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Yeah. And. I kind of look at it this way, like, dude, it's all jujitsu. Everything kind of has its role. Like there's some things that are strictly competition and sport based. There's some things I only do when I play with my buddies. Like I'm not a barambolo guy. So if I happen to barambolo in a role, it's because I'm screwing around, right? I'm playing yeah. with something. Yeah. 
but that doesn't mean it's what I would use in a competition and things that I would use in competition don't necessarily translate to what I would use in a fight. Turtle yeah. position is a great example. Oh yeah. Turtle position works great in competition, but I would never turtle up in a fight. No, just wouldn't do it. Uh, nobody should do that. No. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's the same thing with like Taekwondo. It's like, I kind of feel like at this point, like, I, I don't know, you and I have talked about this before that I feel like Taekwondo, I don't know if it needs to split or if there needs to be this kind of like reemergence, I, I I don't know what it needs, but I feel like I feel like what I do is not Taekwondo anymore, and that's frustrating to me because the Taekwondo that I came up with, I really love and feel passionate about, and I feel like the direction I've t- taken my program, I love and feel passionate about, and it's frustrating to me when I see people who all they want to do is see this kind of how do I put this. Like, you know, we were talking about earlier, like it doesn't have to be sport all the goddamn always. Mm-hmm. There's other aspects to Taekwondo. And I feel like people kind of fall in these bubbles where it's either always sport oriented. It's always family style oriented. And I just kind of feel like there's some real martial arts that's being lost. And for people like me who are pa- like passionate about martial arts, I-, I don't even know what to feel about Taekwondo anymore. It's frustrating. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's like, I've gone through like a bunch of phases in thinking about the identity of different arts and um, traditional martial artists are really threatened by the idea that there's too much overlap between styles and they're threatened by the idea that Taekwondo's identity might be more fluid than a collection of pumse or terms or one steps. And um, I've often been told you know, why don't you just call what you do kickboxing instead of Taekwondo? If I don't, don't teach kickboxing, if, yeah. Well, I've, I have like a grand total of six months of kickboxing with not even yeah. that much sparring. And um, I'm not a kickboxer. Uh, my comp, I've never competed in a kickboxing rule set match. American mm-hmm. kickboxing, Muay Thai kickboxing, and other unified rules formats yes there's overlap yes you can you can train for them all with you know muay thai and dutch kickboxing but they all have the rule set drives certain things about them they all have their own content even if they're similar even if there's overlap there is some content that is not overlapping that that forms some sort of emergent identity and just because it's difficult to point out or just because it's not extensive enough doesn't mean that those stylistic distinctives aren't present. Here's an example. Um, even within one sport like judo, there are discernibly different styles of play between country teams. And mm-hmm. you've got the French style of, of judo where there's a couple of different uh, grips and stuff. And this is mostly yeah. driven by certain coaches that are at that time and certain things they're good at. And maybe, you know, Korean judo people, they have Syrian sorts of tactics they've, they've influenced. So their style is a little bit different. And Americans have always had this wrestling type of, of um, thing going on. And obviously Russians too. Russians are excellent at that. And, um, and so there are, so it's, it's funny that you, you know, p- people like uh, they can, they can actually, when, when you, when they don't realize it, they're able to see the point that I'm making as far as like these emergent differences between the two that, that form identities. But when it comes to, the, whatever their sacred cow is like 
you know, Taekwondo has to be X, Y, Z. It's got to have these Pumse. It's got to yeah. have these one steps or something like these one steps. Um, and actually, you know, Kyurugi or sparring is, is actually secondary. You got to have the Pumse. Um, yeah. They pretend like they, are, they, are, they don't understand that just because distinctions can be smaller, that <laughs> they're still distinctive. There's still different identities. And there's, there's ways that you, you can watch a UFC match, for example, and you can actually tell if somebody who has a really good front leg kick, first of all, it doesn't happen that often, but when you do, you can usually tell if it's a Taekwondo or a karate person yeah. because they both do the front leg a little bit, but karate people use it in a way, uh, more primitive way than Taekwondo people do. And you can usually tell. Yeah. With a few exceptions. Um, you know, if you look at somebody like Wonder Boy and his sidekick, um, mm-hmm. he's a karate guy, but he throws it much more similar to mm-hmm. how a Taekwondo sidekick slash sure. kick is used. Sure. Um, because he intercepts with it a lot and stuff like that. It, but he's an exception rather than the rule. I, right. But I agree. And I want to kind of address something that you point out, because I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. And I think this is why I'm so frustrated. I feel like Taekwondo is this very broad thing to me, and it can mean a lot of different things. And I feel like there's enough room for my style of Taekwondo to exist. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating because the people within Taekwondo kind of reject my style of Taekwondo. Right. And the people outside of Taekwondo, they hear what I do and they go, oh, it's just Taekwondo. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I kind of get caught in this spot where it's very frustrating because I don't like yourself. I don't want to claim to be a kickboxing coach because I'm not teaching kickboxing. I'm a yeah. sixth on in Taekwondo and I came up through the ranks doing Taekwondo. Right. Um, I cross-trained and I added in some boxing and some kickboxing and some Muay Thai. Um, I added in some wrestling. I added in some, you know, basic jujitsu stand-ups and stuff like that. So I added things from other arts that I've trained in and cross-trained to kind of make it a unique style of Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. But it's frustrating to me when people are telling me that I'm not really Taekwondo. Yeah. And I think maybe because yeah. I don't focus enough on Pumsei or maybe because yeah. uh, I don't care about the... There's a purity issue. Yeah. Or the purity. Yeah. And I'm kind of like deviated off of the path. I don't do a lot of sports stuff. I don't do any family styles Taekwondo. Um, I, I'm not interested in that. I have only a few kids that I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want large kids classes because I don't want to deal with it. I mostly run oriented <laughs> Taekwondo. Yeah. And as an adult oriented Taekwondo, that means that my focus is very different because, you know, when you do a kid's class, you have to keep it a little bit more kid friendly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but if you go to one of my adult classes, I'm going to swear like the Marine I am. I'm going to talk about, like, look, if this dude comes in here, this is how you kick his fucking leg off. Sorry, I don't know if you like swearing on your podcast, but it's it is what it uh, is. I don't. Yeah, I don't usually censor any of that stuff. Okay, I, I'm not. I'll try to keep it toned down. But like during my adult class, I'm very straightforward about like I want to run a type of taekwondo that is effective as a self defense system. Yeah, and I feel like it's important for me to do so not only for my own sake because that's what I'm interested in. But also because I don't think there's enough of it in Taekwondo. And the guys who are claiming to be, you know, a style of Taekwondo that is designed for open rule sets, mm-hmm. I look at what they do and I'm like, no, no, you are missing a lot. Like you are trying to say that you are adding in boxing because maybe you watch some videos, but you clearly have not studied any boxing. You know what right. I mean? Like you're not trying yeah. to actually add it in. 
Um, that's another. That's it. another problem with. I, I'm. I'm just gonna let you go on, but that's just another problem with traditional martial artists is thinking that they can just pick things out of a textbook and. Yep. That's. Oh, dude! Don't even get me started. I can't even. So there's there's a chain school near here, Asian Sun, and man, like everything I hate about bad Taekwondo is like in this chain school. It drives me nuts. <laughs> one of the things that they do is like I'll see them advertising Krav Maga, and I'm like. I bet that that guy has never studied any Krav Maga in his life. And it's not to say that you can't study something and implement it in, but you have to actually learn it if you're going to do that. And it's the same thing. Like they, they were doing a jujitsu class for a while and they're right across the parking lot from where I do jujitsu at. Mm-hmm. And one of my buddies, his kid was going there and his kid was doing jujitsu with us and, you know, trying to do Taekwondo over there to learn some stand up. And he was saying, like, like they were doing a jujitsu class, and these people had no idea what they were doing. Like, and it, it's it's frustrating to me. And probably the thing that bothers me more than anything else out of any martial arts is when you have a martial arts instructor who tries to teach something that they have not really learned. Yep. And oh man, it bugs me. I, I wish, I wish it were possible. Well, maybe, maybe that I would be wishing to uh, that could that could backfire, but I wish it were possible that you could, there could be legal ramifications for that type of fraud, but, but, but to require, but to enact, but to actually enforce something like that, you would have, now you'd have like government licensed and it would be ridiculous. It'd be terrible. It'd probably be worse overall. And this is the same problem I have with like, one of the things I go back and forth a lot, because one of the things I would love to see is more credibility in Taekwondo. Mm -hmm. I think there's a major issue right now that a lot of people in Taekwondo don't even want to acknowledge to be totally honest. And it's a very big issue is that Taekwondo has lost a lot of credibility. Yeah. And a lot of that is because there's nothing in terms of performance standards. Like I always use jujitsu as kind of like the flip side of that coin, where if you look at jujitsu, I know if I roll with a blue belt, approximately what his skill, skill level is going to be. Like you have a very good idea of mm-hmm. what their ability is. If I yeah. roll with a brown belt in jujitsu, man, I know what I'm getting into on that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of consistency in rank. There's a lot of consistency in terms of performance. You might have your own game, might have your own mm-hmm. style, but you have a pretty good idea of the performance consistency. Whereas Taekwondo, man, you no. can get somebody who's a fourth degree black belt who doesn't know anything, doesn't know forms, doesn't know how, like how to kick, can't fight. Like they honestly like don't really know anything and their instructor probably doesn't know anything and they're teaching stuff they don't really understand and then you have guys who are absolute killers who are of a lesser rank or equal rank and and so i go through in my mind like what can taekwondo do about this issue and i've tossed out ideas and i've debated with people and right now i'm kind of stuck trying to figure it out i and i don't want to solve it myself because that's other people's problems I think a lot of it comes from leadership, which is part of why I'm so critical on the Kukuwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I the, the get Kukuwan is recently won't. recognized that that um, what they've done with sport Taekwondo has created the illusion that there's only one way to spar within Kukuwan. Yeah. But the problem is, is even in South Korea, almost nobody does anything other than sport Taekwondo. Yeah. So they've, they've, so, you know, so yeah, we've created this illusion, but the only way you'd know that there are other ways legitimately within the Kukiwan philosophy to spar is to read the, the Kukiwan textbook where it says 
that there's different ways to spar, but nobody does it. Right. And that's what happens with competition. And I'm not against sport Taekwondo. It's just a sport and it's fun. Um, no, I, I think sport is great. I, I think there's a lot of benefit to sport. We I need more rule that. sets. There's nothing wrong with more rule sets. It's not a I danger agree. or a threat to Taekwondo's identity to have different Taekwondo rule sets. We don't even have to change the Olympic sparring. We just need another rule set. Yeah. And they could be totally separate competitions run by totally separate organizations. Um, one of the ideas I tossed around was the idea of having, so you have WT, you have ATA, you have ITF. I almost feel like there needs to be some like separate branches within WT Taekwondo hmm. and it would allow for paths. And this would allow, like you and I have talked before about promotion should be based on the, what you're actually working on. And every Taekwondo school ever, all you really promote on is Pumse, mm -hmm. which is insane to go to a school that is entirely focused on competition and promote based on Pumse. Yep. So I kind of categorized it into like four different branches of Taekwondo. And I said, well, you have form schools and it could be uh, for a variety of different reasons. It could be competitive form schools. It could be older guys that all they want to do is work on forms, whatever it is. It's a forms based school. So you, yeah. if you're going to go to one of those schools, promoting based on forms makes sense. Then there's competition and sport based schools. And all they do is competition and sport. So your promotion in that system should be based on something having to do with that. It doesn't necessarily have to be medals. It could also be something as simple as like understanding certain sport philosophies, understanding certain tactics, mm -hmm. understanding certain concepts or certain combinations, whatever it is. Having a separate criteria based on that. It's a little bit harder to do, but it's very achievable. Yeah. Uh, the third one would be um, family style. I call it PG Taekwondo. Um, hmm. Like, here's the thing. Those schools are not bad. Those schools exist for a reason. There's a reason they're very popular. And the thing is, I realize in my mind, we need to stop judging them on the same criteria that we judge other forms of Taekwondo. You yeah. can't judge kids to perform on Pumse and sparring and competition and all this other stuff, self-defense, because that's not what they're learning there. What they are learning is emotional development. So their performance should be judged based on emotional development. So... The Taekwondo is a tool to get them there, mm -hmm. but your promotion is not necessarily skill-based. And if you separate it out and you say, well, I belong to PG Taekwondo system, you go, okay, I don't expect you to have this knowledge of how to be a John Wick, right? Mm -hmm. I expect you to have somebody like you've gone through the system and maybe it's therapeutic. Maybe you learn verbal de-escalation, anti-bullying, how to get better grades in school, dealing mm. with maybe social anxiety. Yeah. Your promotion is then based on that. So that's a third style. The fourth branch is what I kind of put myself into. Um, and it's a much smaller branch. There's not a lot of people who do it, but it's the guys who are looking at open rule sets and self-defense. These are the guys who are looking to learn how to really, really fight. Not in a competition scenario, not like from a hypothetical, understanding how to take Taekwondo. And, you know, this is a guy that if you put him in MMA would probably do okay. This is a guy that in a street fight would probably do okay. Mm -hmm. He might not do the best at competition. He might not have the best forms, but then his promotion is based on this. So I think if the Kukawan had branches, yeah, and you could say, I belong to this branch and mm -hmm. my school is this branch, it also allows you to kind of advertise your school based on that. Now, will the majority of schools probably still 
be family focused or competition? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then I know if I'm going to a school, what to expect out of that school. Yeah. Because Taekwondo schools are not the same. If I go to Asian Sun and I'm from out of town, I don't know what kind of Taekwondo I'm going to get there. If I'm going there looking for competition and I'm getting PG Taekwondo, I'm going to be like, these guys all suck. They're all terrible. But it's because I'm going there with the wrong expectations. So yeah, I don't know if that would solve the problem, but that's a thing that I've been kind of going through in my if, mind. And that's a thing the, that Kukuwan could do. Yeah. But I don't see it ever happening. If the Kuki one wanted to drive an organizational from from the very top, it wanted to do something to drive organize organizational change. Um, it would be best for them to have different departments that regulate very different things and they and they measure those things based on their own measurement instruments and not based on a triangulated collection of basic sparring, pumse and one steps and breaking, right? And yeah. um, which is not even the way that pre-war, pre-war karate and like tr- Chinese martial arts wasn't even, you didn't have to break boards to move up. You didn't have to like know a million kata. It's well, just I'm weird. Board breaking kind of seems to exist only for demonstrations. And man, like the Koreans just love board breaking now. Like, I don't know yeah. what happened over the last 20 years, but like, I can't tell you how much I see like, man, every demo team, first of all, they're not breaking real wood anyway, which is kind of yeah. like, Super it's thin. kind of all advertising. It's like these balsa boards. Yeah. And like they, they want to show these high flying kicks and stuff. And, and I get why they do it. Cause people ooh and ah at it. But for me, I find it very cringe. Yeah. Um, I, I think what the Kukuwan could also do if they didn't want to go that route, like the danger is like, you don't want to over-regulate Taekwondo because you take a lot of the individualism out of it. And I don't think anybody yeah. wants that. Yeah. But what I think they could do is they could have experts who gave free seminars to instructors and look, the Kukuwan is not hurting for money. They could get a couple instructors, send them over, have somebody who's a full-time traveling instructor who teaches XYZ. And it could be something that is towards the betterment of Taekwondo. And they could have a different focus each year and make it, okay, this year we want to focus on how do we make Pumse more practical? You know what I mean? Whatever it is, but giving back more to Taekwondo. Here's the thing I have a problem with the Kukuwan. In my mind, all they are is this fuddy-duddy organization that all they care about is two things expanding taekwondo with very tiktok friendly things and collecting dues yeah what are the examples outside of that this is why i have no respect for that organization and when i criticize them people go well they're doing stuff they're changing i've been hearing that for years and i've never seen anything come out of them except for different uniforms don skipping Mm -hmm. all every time i turn around they're on the wrong side of every issue yeah, I don't care about dawn skipping, but I know that it's misused in the sense that people who are not very good are getting skipped anyways. And that's that's the issue. That's for me with rank, like it's difficult. Uh it's difficult to get me upset about what people do with ranking, but uh, unless the person just sucks, right? But well, but we don't we don't have a way. How can you but here's my thinking on that is how can we judge? How can we judge people doing stuff like that when we don't even have a way to actually measure one to measure anything? Right? We we kind of have a good idea what good pumse looks like depending on what it where what tradition you come from, but like good sparring 
um, is like a, I know it when I see it thing. Like we don't have any way yeah, to measure I that. I, I totally agree. And it's like, and I equate it with like, once again, with jujitsu, like a blue belt, I could not tell you and put my finger on and say, this is exactly what makes a blue belt. Cause it's more than a collection of techniques, right? Yeah. I know when I roll with a blue belt, what I should be expecting out of them, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with rank in Taekwondo. Like you can do the same thing. It's all manageable. But the problem is that the Kukuwan doesn't give a shit. The leadership within Taekwondo of all these schools, they don't give a shit because they want to just promote because it's money. There's this, and this is an issue I have where a lot of schools they promote people because they're just trying to collect a check because there's so many schools that they're tied in with their bankroll like in a lot of schools like their dues just pays the rent they're not making money until they're doing in-house competitions and testings that's where the instructors make their living off of yeah and like for me i got away from that i stopped charging for testings um for color belts i charge for don testings but i do them very infrequently Mm -hmm. and for color belt testings i just worked it on the dues yep so look i'm raising everybody's dues 10 bucks a month i'm keeping it a flat rate this way, I don't feel compelled to test you. I've had, I had a couple of kids who they sat at Purple Belt for a year and a half. <laughs> I didn't feel like they were ready. Like yeah. they didn't know what I wanted them to know. And I told them like, look, if you want to promote, this is what you got to do. And they just kept on not doing it. So eventually yeah. they did it. I was like, okay, cool. I can promote you. Yeah. And it, it's, it saves me the hassle as an instructor, but yeah, it's, and this is where like the credibility thing becomes an issue. And, and I don't know the answer. I know that part of the problem is that nobody wants to address it because it's become financially viable to not address it. Mm-hmm. Um, too many people are in denial about the reputation of Taekwondo to begin with. Mm-hmm. Like everybody wants to defend Taekwondo because we love the art that we train in. And unfortunately people criticize it. And instead of looking at it and going, this is a fair criticism, we just want to be like, yeah, but here's like, they come up with excuses, you know, mm-hmm. and justification is nothing but mental masturbation anyway. So I try to avoid it. Um, justification that is. Uh, and so I try to look at it and say, what could I be doing in my Taekwondo to make it better? But a lot of times what I see out of people is like when they come under criticism from people who do other arts, they just bury their head in the sand. Yeah. There's, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons one thing that I've said probably more than once on the podcast, but there's a, there's a instructors won't admit it, but it's in Taekwondo and it's in karate both. And um, in studying the business of running a traditional martial arts school, uh, I realized that there is a financial incentive to de-emphasize sparring Yep. There's and a big incentive uh, to to emphasize forms in one steps because that yep. it, it lowers your it it just massively lowers your liability. It keeps people there because they don't stop going because it's too rough. Well, and it's and, also about target market. So if it, like look at who tar- like Taekwondo generally targets. Let's be honest. Taekwondo, most Taekwondo schools target people under the age of 20, mostly teenagers and kids mm-hmm. and their parents. They want to bring in the parents for the family so that they can have a family activity that they do, right? So when you talk about the soccer mom and her 12-year-old son, those people don't want to spar. 
And so they take sparring off the menu and they do forms because it's non-contact. Mm -hmm. They do one steps. Um, you know, they do stuff that it's all very like safe to do that. It doesn't ever yeah. really challenge them. Um, and this is what I'm saying about PG Taekwondo. Like that stuff, it's okay to exist, but we need to start separating it from other forms of Taekwondo so that we can yeah. grade it on the right curve. Yeah. I've, I've been saying that Taekwondo should be a tracked, tracked system between um, people who want to do Pumsei, uh, whether just for self, you know, for, for meditative or exercise or for competition yeah. um, or and between people who want to do sparring and self and or self-defense and um you you need to have i don't i don't know about you don't need ranks for something i have a different philosophy on self-defense i think for the most part self-defense should be an interdisciplinary thing and it really i would never regulate self-defense under the mantle of just taekwondo if i were to if i were to try to um but uh, uh, but that aside um the thing that is most readily uh measured would be whatever major rule set or group of rule sets that it is that you you like to engage in as a school and um we know how to measure good pumsei because we we look at we have a list of of certain yeah. technical markers that you need to meet we know what it looks like the quality of the movement looks like and um everyone kind of has a good idea for that but but nobody's even begun to, to think of of what 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 measuring um, a functional skill set would look like because right now we're trying to measure it as if it were Pumsei. What techniques do you know? I agree. And this know? is where I'm saying like I got away from that. So like when I look at like how my guys promote, mm. I vastly de-emphasize Pumsei as an attribute that they need to excel. Mm -hmm. Now if they do want to go that path, I'm absolutely encouraging of it. Like I have a one of my students Loves Pumsei. That's what he likes to do because he feels comfortable with it. Um, and, and that's where he wants to grow then. And that's fine. It, it makes it yeah. very easy for me. Um, but for yeah. my students, you know, like I said, the guys who are focused on other things, what I'm grading them on has a lot more to do with, like we talked about before. This is all stuff that's very easy to measure if you have an instructor who is capable of doing so. The mm -hmm. issue is that most of these schools do not have capable instructors. I think it's gotten to the point that maybe one out of 50 Taekwondo schools has a capable instructor. I'm going to be totally honest. And I say that because what I see is very supportive of that statement. Now I could be wrong, but I think that very few guys really know what they're looking at when they look at fighting. And I think part of it is because nobody's ever taught them. These guys don't understand concepts. Like people like to use the word concepts a lot, right? Mm -hmm. It's a buzzword. Yeah. And I kind of look at it like verbal de-escalation and like legal awareness and stuff like that self-defense laws, people throw out these buzzwords like awareness, right? Because it's something that like when you talk about self-defense, you hear awareness all the time, but there's no teeth behind it, right? Like they say this word all the time. Like you have to be situationally aware, yeah. but they don't talk about what the steps of that are. Yes. And it's the same thing with concepts. People talk about concepts in sparring and they go, you know, it's important to study concepts and they go, okay, which concepts are you specifically referring to? And they have no idea. And that's the thing. So one of the things I'm actually getting into on my channel is actually breaking down concepts. And some of them are things that are fairly axiomatical. And a lot of people probably already know for somebody like you at your level, you probably know most of these, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about things like I, I talk about like the threat and variable principle where you, 
present a threat over and over again until that person is forced to address it. And you keep hitting it until they address it. If they don't address it, you can hit them as much as you want. So they are forced to address the threat. When they do, you use the variable because they have opened themselves up to the variable. Yeah. Um, it, it's a principle, right? Right. Uh, and, and so principles like that, for somebody who's a higher rank, a lot of these should be pretty self-explanatory. But I think for a lot of people, they've never considered what these principles and concepts are. They just like to use it as a buzzword. And mm-hmm. it's, it's frustrating to me. So I'm yeah. trying to like, clarify this on my channel. Well, like, you, you, you did a video on uh, pseudo-intellectuals and the martial arts is chock full of people who know enough about non-martial arts stuff to use to bring in some vocabulary. But mm-hmm. when you ask clarification questions, they have not done the mental work to map that onto martial arts and actually create something that is comprehensible and functional. And uh, something like, um, one thing I, I, one of those red pills that I just kind of noticed with martial arts was people like Wing Chun and Krav Maga are the worst about this. Um, they, they say, we're, we're actually a principle-based martial art or we're a principle-based self-defense system. Everything's based on principles, not techniques. And well, then Krav Maga is so great. Why do you suck at fighting? Uh, yeah, that's the one thing. And, and, and Krav Maga is the most hilarious example of this because Krav Maga is literally a syllabus of uh, 30 techniques. And yep. um, that's, that is literally all it is. And they do these very isolated drills and almost never spar. And they'll say something like, yeah, there's the principle of whatever. And they'll do the dumb thing they do with the front yeah, choke. Like, which, yeah, like and then you never hear it again. You never yeah. hear it again. It, it's a principle, but it also has no governing. Uh, it, it it has no. It doesn't represent something that happens in a real fight whatsoever. It doesn't even represent problem solving. I, I agree. I think that there's a few things in there that are great. Krav Maga is kind of like a thing anyway, where like, like you said, it's only really like uh, thirty principles or so, and it's things that you could add on. It's a nice supplemental art. But the problem is that you have guys who did Aikido for 30 years that now they're Krav Maga instructors. And really yeah. what they are, they're Aikido instructors who don't want to call themselves Aikido instructors. Yeah. You know, yeah. but that's a whole other thing. But I, I, hate, I hate Krav Maga. I think it sucks. <laughs> I think it's worse than taking strip mall karate. And I, I will argue to the death to defend that and I will win. Um, well, it makes a lot of middle-aged people feel really good about themselves. It makes posers with low testosterone feel good about themselves. There's a lot of there's a lot of guys who are gym warriors too who are they it's the, it, they're all they're cross. They're mentally they're cross. It's the crossfit of martial arts is what I think that's Krav a really good analogy for you. That's what um, it is. Yeah, it, it's a lot of guys who do crossfit who they want to hit a bag repeatedly with their elbows. They're they're super good and super passionate at nothing in particular. That's what they are. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. Yeah. That, I mean, what are they good at? They can't spar. They can't fight. They, no. they get aggressive at each other and talk really tough yeah. about well, kicking the tombstone. The principle is kind of like an aggression based, aggression based thing. And I, and I talk about this a lot when you talk about McMap and the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I love picking on McMap because like, I remember doing McMap training and like, you'd have these guys who went to this month long black belt course. That <laughs> and they think they're tough. Little yeah. black belt. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, and they're trying to teach me how to do a roundhouse kick. I'm like, dude, I've been doing this since I was 10. Right. Trust right. me, you right. are wrong. Like, and they would tell me things that are flat out wrong. And I would tell them like, you don't know what you're talking about. They're like, I have a black belt. I'm like, no. 
I don't care. Like you're wrong. And it's just a thing that it's, it's silly because like the thing is in the Marine Corps, it's kind of the same as Krav Maga. When you talk about military martial arts, people forget that the purpose of those martial arts has nothing to do with actual fighting acumen. Mm-hmm. There are several reasons that the Marine Corps does martial arts and they have nothing to do with hand-to-hand combat. One has to do with recruiting. MMA is very popular. If you look at who they're trying to recruit, doing a martial arts program helps with recruiting because it makes people feel like they're going to come out as a badass. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, it is about a psychological effect. You want them, uh, boot camp is about stripping away their identity and replacing it with the aggression that they need to survive in combat. Yeah. They want people to feel like no matter what happens, that you are able to easily win. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when you talk about unarmed combat, the Marine Corps philosophy is that if you had to fight unarmed, you did not do your job with the rifle. You fucked up a lot of places along this way. A lot of things went wrong. If you're fighting unarmed, you somehow got isolated from your unit with another person with no weapon. You lost your weapon. You lost your, like any tactical weapons of opportunity. And if that person happens to survive, you have no idea of if you can measure it based on success. Like, because let's say they survive. Maybe it was because of that or maybe not. Maybe they just happen to come out on top. There's no way of measuring it. And then you have no idea how many people didn't survive because they use this in combat and failed. So you have no idea if it's actually effective based on that metric. Mm -hmm. So the metric itself is bad, but really the philosophy is silly. And so these guys come out and they go, well, I did McMap or I did Krav Maga. They're like, well, that's great. You learn how to be aggressive. Cool. And not to underestimate aggression. I think aggression in a fight is very important. Yeah. But it can't override, like Krav Maga people think it can override stuff and it it can't, it can't. You got to have some notion of of what you're doing. There's something to be said for conditioning and aggression can get you really far in a fight. If you have a guy, like the more conditioning and aggression and natural attributes that person has, the more Mm -hmm. technique to overcome it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I hear this thing from like women or people who are small, they're like, I don't feel like what I do can work. Well, yeah, you weigh 110 pounds. That guy weighs 250. You need a lot of technique if you are going to be able to beat that person. It's doable, but you need a lot of technical knowledge to be able to do that. You need a lot of experience. You need strong concepts. You need strong systems. You need a lot in your favor or you're going to lose because they have a lot of natural attributes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's one one of the things is that people that have the best understanding like if you look at at people who've been doing boxing or muay thai or jujitsu or just grappling for a long time and then they get into they start to coach you know you look on youtube and there's you can find 10 different really really good analyses of somebody's game like um bjj scout is one of the best examples of that where his understanding of what's going on on a dynamic level of what's going on on a strategic level and is really strong. The people that are best at that are people who have a lot of functional practice, not people who necessarily were uh, inherited that knowledge from somebody else. Like they, they did get things from their instructor, but they have the experience first of all, as a foundation, and then they have the analytical propensity to take what that, what I might call embodied knowledge and translate that to, um, propositional knowledge that you can then tell somebody this is what's going on instead of feeling it or understanding it intuitively. And a lot of people understand things intuitively uh, and can't articulate it and that's fine. 
But um, a lot of people don't understand anything at all because they simply just don't have enough practice in that environment to have developed that or discovered that skill. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, like my own ability to do analysis is something I've had to develop over the last, you know, three years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's drastically changed the way I fight. It's drastically changed my game. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that probably has been the best thing for me was breaking off on my own. Yeah. Uh, I think that had I stayed where I was at, it was holding back my development because when I broke off on my own, um, seven, eight, nine, let's see, 2012. So bad. It's been like nine years. Holy crap. Um, when I broke off on my own, I started changing things and I started opening myself up to new areas that I didn't understand. And the last couple of years in particular have really opened my mind towards understanding the way that fighting really works. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because you, I spent a lot of my time doing a, a lot of analysis on fights. I sit there in my free time and I am a total nerd that what I do is I sit down and I pick one fighter. And I go through every one of their fights and I break things down and I try to figure out what is this guy doing that makes him so successful. We talked about this the last time with my system breakdowns. Yeah. And since then, I've gotten to the point where I started identifying key traits for success. What are the things that if you want to be a successful fighter, that absolutely need to happen? And I kind of want to plug myself here talking about the Namian fight system, if that's okay. Because Yeah, go ahead. Because we're, we're going to talk about you know, what you've done with the constraints led approach since I last talked to you. And that's definitely part and parcel to that. So go ahead. Absolutely. It's a training methodology is going to be a big part of this conversation. Yeah. Um, and part of it is it kind of worked out well in terms of time, but I want to kind of break down like what I did and then explain like how I got there. Mm-hmm. So I started doing these like system breakdowns and I started off with initially trying to figure out like, what are the guys who transition from a traditional martial art, like your Leota Machitas and your Wonder Boys and stuff like that? What did they do to transition into more of an open rule set like MMA? And I started breaking them down and saying, like, why is this person successful? What did they do that they changed their game? But then I started going this whole like rabbit hole and I started really kind of figuring out what are the character, like, what are the things that this guy does that makes him win when other people cannot? You know, John Jones, he has a lot of natural attributes, but there's plenty of other people who do. Gustafsson has fairly similar attributes to him. And yet his ability to outstrike him and do things is unprecedented, right? And there's a lot of guys like that that are these champions that if you look at what some of these guys do, why are they always successful when other people aren't, even if they're beating people with better natural attributes? Look at Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori. Marvin Vittori is jacked. Right. Mm-hmm. He has a nasty takedown in terms of attributes. Well, Izzy's got a little bit more reach. Um, in terms of attributes, he probably came up fairly short on that. And yet he dominated that fight. And a lot of that has to do with understanding the way that he faints, understanding the way that his system breaks down. And the more that you analyze his concepts and the techniques that he uses to get there, the more you can build it into your own game. And that was my initial philosophy. And from there, then I started getting into developing what I call the Nemean fight system. And what I really wanted was I wanted to develop a fight system that had a couple of goals in mind. One is I wanted it to be simplistic enough to teach somebody to take some of the chaos out of fighting. One of the biggest issues that I've seen with a lot of fighters is that when people, especially when they're coming up the ranks, it's information overload at every turn. There's so much technique you have to learn. There's so much you have to be aware of that's getting thrown at you. 
it's so complex that it overwhelms people. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do is slow that process down. Very similar to like, you know, we talk about, I'm going to use jujitsu as a comparison a lot because to me, it shows an example of like what works, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that's nice about jujitsu is that if I get a guy who's younger and more athletic, I can pull them in and control the fight, right? I can slow down the pace of things. And so I started analyzing, like, what are the things that I would have to do to slow down the pace and remove some of the chaos in a fight? So that was objective number one. Objective number two is I wanted it to play to my strengths and always put the fight on my terms. So um, I'm a kicker, right? I want a game. I don't want to box with somebody where I have a potential of getting my head knocked off. I want to stay out of that range as much as possible. I want to pick them apart from the outside. And if they do try to get in there, I want to be able to close the gap, clinch, take them down and finish it, right? Yep. So six down in Taekwondo, purple belt and jujitsu. Those are my strong suits. So I wanted it to play to my strengths. And then I wanted to start building in concepts that allowed me to funnel them down to predictable movements. So I started getting into this and I started building in more and more and I started adding things. And that was kind of my starting point. So if you look at this, I start off with talking about the expansion contraction system where you start off with a long guard using a two barrier system with a front leg sidekick and a long lead hand to keep them at bay, making it very difficult for them to reach you. You do a lot of exploding out, slow to enter, explode back out. And you kind of pick them apart. You use a lot of heavy fainting to try to offset. And then you can kind of funnel them down to a couple predictable things. Now we do this from an open stance where I have more access to the liver and it also gives me more range control. Um, I have some other range control stuff that's built into it, which I think is very important, but I don't want to bog down this with details. Um, but then I started talking about like different things and I started building off of this and started building in what I call background processes, mm-hmm. which are things that always need to occur if you're going to play within the system. And if you have a specific system, it allows you to have very controlled background processes. So like one of them is outside foot position. You always have to have outside foot position dominance if you play from an open stance. So if I force an open stance, I can be in control of this. And it's a thing that they might not even be considering. But for me, it's in the back of my mind. I don't even have to think about it because I've drilled it out, right? Another example, then I can get into microsystems, which are within the system. I know that there are four predictable attacks. Since I've cut off his ability to box very well, and I've cut off a lot of the lead side area, it means that what he has access to that he's most likely to engage in is the lead side leg kick, the open side of the body kick. Uh, blitzing and takedowns. If I know that these are my four things and the first two are going to be the primaries that I'm going to be exposed to, I can start building a countering game based on that and start building systems designed to deal with these common threats. So this is kind of my idea for what I built up in the system. And then I have things for when things go wrong, right? Sometimes I just did a video on if somebody is constantly switching stance to make it difficult using that and filtering them into an attack, right? If you're forced into a closed stance, how to deal with that in different tactics. So adding in concepts, all this stuff. So that is the basis of the system. So the system alone is only part of what I'm doing. And this is where I want to get into constraints-led approach and training methodology, because this is, I know your jam, right? Mm-hmm. So the Nemean fight system, one of the things I said is like, look, if we're going to have a system that is designed to give people the ability to increase their ability, I have to get them there. And that means training in different ways. And it kind of coincided a lot with, you know, you and I had talked last February about the constraints-led approach, and I've been starting to do more research on it. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm very, very far from. I'm just starting to pick up a little bit, right? And I'm adding it in. 
And while I don't necessarily follow the constraints-led approach on everything, the key thing that I'm looking for is not doing things for reps for numbers. That is the number one thing I'm trying to avoid at all costs. Yep. There are some situations where I think you have to only to get a feel for the movement a little bit. But then I kind of want to explain what I mean by this because yes and no. So let's talk about like some of the things that I've done. Uh, I think that whenever you drill, you should have an objective, something that you are looking to develop out of that drill. And when you drill for numbers, your goal is always to get through the numbers. Mm-hmm. If I tell somebody to do 50 roundhouse kicks, your objective is to do 50 roundhouse kicks. It's not developing the skill at all, right? Mm-hmm. This is the issue I have. And, and I think that, you know, you and I came up through the ranks where, you know, we were taught that whoever did the most roundhouse kicks had the quickest, best roundhouse, right? Yep. And I found that's not the case. And after talking with you, that has only amplified my feeling towards that. And, you know, I, I watched some of the videos you sent me and stuff like that. And it's reinforced the belief that I had that training methodology is being done wrong in traditional martial arts. Mm -hmm. We use the same dogmatic stuff that we've been taught. Last time I was on, we talked about how flexibility, I had broken off of what we had been taught, the same tired flexibility routine where you do 15 seconds in each position, then you switch 15 seconds. And you really don't do flexibility development. And one of the problems I have with Taekwondo is it's such an attribute-based system that if you're not six foot tall and 15 years old, with amazing flexibility, you're going to struggle mm-hmm. as a guy like myself, who is 41 now, and I don't have the flexibility I used to have. I need to start creating different ways of getting there. So I started getting into PNF stretching, right? And I started yeah, looking at me too. Yeah. different types of flexibility. And it just opened my mind to the fact that, holy crap, I've been doing it wrong forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and starting to understand the difference between dynamic and static stretching and what I should be doing at different parts of my warm up and stuff. Right. So then when you talk about the Nemean fight system, and this is where I want to bring it back home, breaking away from the models that had been done previously. So whenever I teach things, I always kind of have an objective. And like, I'm going to give you an example of what I did in class today, because this is going to warm the cockles of your heart, I swear to God. (laughs) Um, So today was a kid's class. So everything was pad drills today, just because I felt like doing pad drills with the kids. Um, I have three kids there. Cause like I said, I don't want to run a big kids class because it doesn't appeal to me, but these are a little bit older kids and they're pretty focused, right? These are kids who are there to train. They're not there to screw around. Mm-hmm. So what I did was the first round I said, all right, look, I'm going to have you start off just to warm your body up, do a couple kicks. Here's a roundhouse, just to refresh you what it feels like to do a roundhouse. Then I started breaking them off of that. And I started doing things where I would hold onto their shoulder and I would start to push them as they did the roundhouse kick. Or I would put my foot on their thigh and as they did the roundhouse kick, I would be cut kicking them. So they had to deliver the roundhouse kick as they were getting cut kicked. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. This is a practical application that you're going to run into a lot, right? Yep. Um, I started doing things like having them do a turning back kick where I would check the hip and I said, the goal is, is I'm going to check your hip. And as soon as I check it, you need to go right into your next kick. I didn't tell them how to get there. I didn't tell them what kick they needed to use. I just told him he had to do something. And this is where constraints lot approach is really great because they immediately, uh, kids, one of the great things about kids is they're a little bit brighter than we are as adults. If I did that with adults, they, they would have gotten there eventually, but the wheels turn a little bit slower. The kids picked it up right away. They knew instantly what I was doing. You know, when I did a drill, where I dragged the elbow and they had to come around pivot and do a roundhouse kick. 
they go, oh, I can see how this connects with my sparring. And what it does is it allows for a better skill development. Now, I will talk about specifics with the Nimian fight system. I, I know I've been talking and ranting because you got me on a pedestal, so uh, I'm excited. <laughs> Exploit <laughs> uh, it to its fullest. Yeah, for sure. Well, I get excited about this. I mean, like yeah. I said, I'm a Mozart third, so I'm passionate. Uh, but I know this is your jam anyway. Yep. So within the Nimian fight system, there are some things that I believe that there are important movements that you have to get down before you can be successful with this. Um, the best example is the expansion where you start in the long guard and as somebody blitzes at you, contracting back into the high guard, uh, it's a Dustin Poirier style high guard where my lead hand comes back to be a catch parry in front of my face. My left hand comes up with a rhino horn to, you know, guard the left side of my face. And I'm contracting back because as somebody blitzes me, if they're blitzing me, it's because they're frustrated that they cannot penetrate my guard and strike me. So what are they doing? They're getting frustrated and they're going to be throwing bombs at my head. So I'm contracting my guard back because they bypassed my barrier and I'm, ex I'm retreating back, covering up my biggest threat, which is them throwing bombs at my face, throwing what I call a disruption punch, which is a counter punch in the midst of this so that I cannot let them just continuously attack. I defend and then I expand back out, right? It's contraction expansion. The movement takes a couple reps to practice, but... When I first start somebody with this, I let them do a couple reps where I walk them through it so they can feel the motion. But as soon as they're done with that, I'm immediately trying to not dwell on that too long because once again, I don't want them repping for numbers. I want them to get a loose feel for it so that then we can start the drilling that I think is going to benefit them. So then we start talking about objectives. And I talked about when I did the constraints-led approach video for the Nemean fight system that I kind of break it down into several categories. One of them is things like, I might put you in a scenario where I will put limitations on your opponent in the way that they can attack. I mentioned the Nemean fight system. We have four primary things that we have to defend from there. The four biggest threats from this system, because it's such a defensive-based system, it's a distance game. It's hard for guys to penetrate, particularly if they're not great at Taekwondo. Like um, if I spar with some guys who have a lot of Muay Thai and stuff like that, or MMA. And they have a very difficult time penetrating that point style. Mm -hmm. And when you add these factors in, the Nemean fight system with the long guard, the two-barrier system, things like that, a lot of use out of the cut kick, front leg, side kick, they have a very difficult time penetrating. So because of that, and because I can limit them to four predictable things, I say, look, this round, all I want you to do, your attacker can, you can defend however you want. I'm not even going to tell you techniques for it. I'm just going to say they can only attack your front leg. That's all they can do. You use this however you want and you defend your leg. You know the attack's coming at you, so it's pretty easy to predict. Very much like one steps, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next round, I go, all they can do is kick to that far side of the body. That's all they can do this round. Then the third round, I might say, well, you can do both. Now, especially for guys like, you know, my black belts and stuff like that, they've been training seven, eight years. They know some techniques, right? They know some things they can do. If they don't, we start adding into it. I say, look, here's one thing that you can do. Play with it, see what happens for you. It's kind of, it's sparring, but it's not really sparring, right? Because they're moving around. They can attack you at will. They can do fainting, anything else, but that's the only thing they can attack with, right? So the first thing I do is limitations on your opponent. The second thing I'll do is I'll do limitations on you. 
That can be anything from you cannot use your hands to defend yourself. The only thing that you can use, maybe the only thing you can use is your front leg sidekick. That's your only defensive tool. You can't move from where you're at. I'm going to keep you locked in a box. I'm going to keep your hands down. But every time that guy enters in, you better get good at planting that sidekick, whether it's on the thigh or the body. So I put limitations on you in terms of what you can do. Sometimes it's not as extreme. Sometimes I might say, um, I'll give you an example. So I get guys who do jujitsu. They want to work takedowns. And maybe, you know, sometimes you get a guy who's not good at takedowns. It's easy to just keep taking them down over and over again. It makes you feel good. So instead, what I say is, I want you to focus on stand-up, but you can only do one takedown this round. You get one. So you need to make it count. I want you to do a perfect takedown, right? I don't care what takedown you do, or maybe I do care. Maybe I say you can only do this type of takedown this round. You do as many times as you want, but only this type of takedown. So I put limitations on you. And then the third thing I do is I might do like objectives base where I go, um, you know, this round, you can do whatever you want, but what I want you to look for is a combination could be any combination you like. You might have a particular combination, or maybe I'll give you one. Maybe I say, all I want you to do is think about when you're attacking the front leg, I want you to not project any intention towards it so that they never see it coming. That is your goal. You do whatever you want the rest of it, but your objective in this match is to try to start hitting that leg and have all your intention focused on a jab, attacking the head, attacking the head, attacking the head, so that when you do attack the leg, They never see it coming because your intention is projected upward. That's your goal, right? So it's objectives-based. So I started getting into different methodologies of how I can get them there. And what I have found between the systematic use of, um, instead of just throwing people in there to spar, which is what we all came up in the ranks. You learn some techniques, good luck. Go get them, slugger, right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Like, when you start Taekwondo sparring, when I started learning, I learned some combinations, but I didn't really learn any of this. No, there's a, I didn't learn. There's a cliff. You, you, everything breaks and you jump. People say you need, well, you need to have one steps and you need to have these whatever drills as a bridge to sparring. And as somebody who went through that system, it does not bridge it. It just, everything breaks. And it's like learning it almost all the way. It's, it's too sharp of a bridge. They are yeah. important bridges. I absolutely believe Pumse and one steps are valuable tools, but there's things in between as well. Right. And those are things that are not being taught. And one of the issues is that we talked about concepts earlier that people pay lip service to it. Mm-hmm. This is one of those areas where I think that this is part of the issue. And I, I say a lot, beginners learn techniques Intermediate students learn concepts, advanced students learn systems, but now I'm starting to add in, but it's the training methodology that gets you there. Okay. And so when I look at how I came up through the ranks and how little I knew, and a lot of this is stuff that I've had to develop myself because it's not talked about. And it's not just Taekwondo. I'm talking about striking in general. I can go on YouTube and look how many striking guys out there talk about these things. They throw a favorite, couple favorite concepts out there and tactics. You know, like um, I like Jeff Chen at MMA Shredded. He's got some fun stuff. He goes, well, these are five best techniques used by Bacall, right? But that's not talking about like, those are combinations, right? Those are things yeah. that that guy likes to hit. That is not the same thing as when you talk about the development of systems and concepts, because 
concepts are basic things that you need to have ingrained in. Like when you look at jujitsu, you have very clear concepts, right? I know like the concept of using a sticky hook versus the concept of like keeping them close. Like there's certain concepts that get ingrained in that system because it's part of it. And a lot of the grappling arts seem to have a lot more of that, but striking, man, there's not a lot of guys out there that teach that stuff because I think that a lot of people don't know it. And I'm talking about even professional fighters. They do stuff on instinct, but that's not a good way of teaching. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm really into is you learn the concepts, you learn the systems, and then you implement a training methodology to bring them to the point where they can understand this and apply it. And that is what I'm trying to achieve right now. Uh, And I'll tell you right now, my experience right now. So I've got a couple students that I've been testing this out on. I've been using all my students, but I have two students in particular that I'm really interested in their development. One is a girl who is nine years old who started with me and all she has known is this system. So I'm very curious to see her development within that. Yeah. What what I have found is that a lot of the intimidation you normally see out of a nine-year-old girl who's sparring kids. She's the youngest kid we have. So the next youngest is my daughter who's coming up on 11 and is twice her size. And because she has systems in place, because she understands some concepts, she doesn't know everything. She doesn't know that much, right? But she has a foundation so that now when she goes in there, she knows what she's trying to achieve. So when you have the Nemean fight system, I have very clear objectives. And I'm saying, these are the things you must do. And then you build upon that, right? It's like learning a butterfly guard. You know the basic things that you're looking for, but then as you get more advanced, you add in more stuff, right? So I'm interested in watching her development. But what I've found is that overall, she goes into it and she knows what she wants to achieve out of sparring. Most nine-year-olds, the first time you put them in, the first year that you put them in sparring, first five years you put them in sparring, they're just trying to throw stuff and like they get intimidated. They don't really know what they're doing. It's just reckless, right? She has clear objectives. And that to me makes me very happy. The other student is a student that uh, one of my students is somebody who came in. He used to have so much anxiety when he came in that even just walking down, doing drills up and down the floor he would shake, yeah, literally shake from anxiety. And over time, he's gotten more comfortable, but he never felt good about sparring, Mm. never. And what him and I have had conversations with is that, first of all, his improvement in sparring, he's a guy that, frankly, everybody, when they sparred him, like he wasn't like the threat guy, right? He was a guy that kind of felt like he just wanted to get out of that situation. Now, not only does he have more confidence because he has clear objectives, he has gone through systematic approaches to get him there. He's gone through the right type of training. Now, when he gets in there, he's a legitimate threat out there. And his sparring has easily increased between two and 500%. And I'm not exaggerating those numbers. Like his experience, sparring him now versus sparring him a year ago, they're apples and oranges. Like it's, and it's not just because he doesn't spar more. He actually spars less now than he used to. But what he does when he spars is phenomenal. He uses range control. He threatens. Um, he's much more difficult to hit. Um, and, and part of that is the systems and the concepts. But part of that is, like I said, you got to have the ways of getting him there and doing walking down the floor, doing roundhouse kicks. Good luck, slugger. That stuff doesn't work, right? Yeah. And so this is where I think you and I meet and we say very eye to eye. Like I'm a systems guy. You're a training methodology guy. And now once these are meeting, what an amazing thing it's doing. And Mm -hmm. 
for those of you guys who might be listening, please go check out what I'm talking about in the Namian fight system. Like this is how as a Taekwondo fighter, if you fight somebody who's a boxer, if you fight a kickboxer, an MMA fighter, this is what you should be doing. But the best thing is you can also apply a lot of these concepts to just Taekwondo spine. Now you have to mm-hmm. modify some rule set stuff, but the basic outlines are there. And when you add the concepts, you add the training methodology. Oh boy. Yeah, a whole a whole different people don't understand that it, that there's a there's almost a sense in which it's it's magic, but it's magic because they're getting relevant experience and then you're taking the relevant experience and you're actually you're doing what you used to do in isolated drills but you're doing it in a context that's actually representative of what they're going to get in a sparring or a fighting match and that's the difference that's the difference there so it's it's um I, when i heard that i was really excited when when um when you first said something about limiting the uh the opponent um I was like, oh man, that's kind of a misunderstanding. And then you, but, but then you, then you kind of extrapolated on what you were doing. And I thought about it more. I was like, you know what? I actually really like that. I like, I like that because you're going to go back and forth. Like the other person's going to get a turn. And even though it's not good to practice with like, oh, you can only do a job in this jab in this sparring march, this, this sparring match. It's not good to practice like that all the time. If you, there is a lot of, uh, value in trying to figure out how to just use footwork in that one technique to yep. score or hit somebody with that one technique. You shouldn't train that way all the time. There actually is value to that sort of, that sort of exercise. And the thing is, it's all gold. It's all geared towards achieving goals within the system, right? So because I have an end game in mind, it makes it easy to cater my training towards that. And part of the issue that I had coming up through the ranks is like, you don't really have this foreseeable end game. You have like, oh, here's a counter. Somebody does this, but like teaching somebody a counter to a roundhouse kick and teaching somebody how to read that kick, you still get overwhelmed because you don't know what this guy's going to do. But if I can limit you down to what you are capable of, and I can get it to a point where I can control pace, I can control speed, I can control distance, I can control and limit you down to a couple of predictable attacks. Now I can start building a training methodology that is going to help me get there. So, you know, when I know what the problems are that I'm going to run into, it's easy to fix those problems. I think the way that we came up through the rank, it's too many problems to fix. It's too much. Like there's too much, like you don't even know where to start. Yeah. And what it becomes is it becomes attribute based fighting. And that is really not something that you can pass on this student that I'm talking about. He's not a natural athlete. I'm going to be totally honest. Um, he struggles to kick midsection. Mm-hmm. And he's been training with me for a long time. He just does not have natural flexibility. Mm-hmm. But this guy now, I would put him up against most people in Taekwondo at this point in terms of actual ability to fight. Yeah. Uh, because now he's he knows how to use what he has and he understands the problems. And we're continuing to work on that so I can gear it towards what are you running into? Why are you running into problems when you use the system? What are the obstacles that you're running into? And I started identifying new obstacles as I went on. And it's easy to patch that when you have a system as opposed to going, well, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. And they seem unrelated. Yep. Yeah. And a lot of those problems get solved on their own when you put them, when you just design an ex, a practice exercise where they can sort of iron things out and trust on the, the correct, this kind of self-correcting process of them. Um, as, as long as they're approaching it 
with a, with a genuine desire to get better, they're going to reflect on it. They're going to try different things. And eventually they're going to come up with something that worked. Now, sometimes they get too frustrated and you have to step in as a coach, but um, there's nothing wrong with, with, with occasionally stepping in and, and giving um, optimizations and feedback like that, because that's part of what you're doing as a coach. You can't discover everything. You can't rediscover everything on your own. But um, what, uh, uh, but the, the problem is, is when I say things like that, when I give instructors, quote unquote, permission um, to, to fall back on, you know, things like instruction and, and heavy coaching, basically they take that as a, a free license to just do what, what they've done before instead of challenge themselves to rely more on the way that they design the practice and less on, on the incessant amount of technical information that they shower on their students throughout a, a, a class. I mean, it's, I used to do it. It's, it's, um, it's, hard it's to too much, from. too much. Like, yeah. Like here's, it's very challenging to break away from. Um, I, I think that part of the issue is that I know what I want my fighters to be able to do. I know what I do in my game. I know what I'm developing in my game. I know my weak spots. I know what I'm trying to develop. I know there's certain areas of my game as I get older, I got to start putting new patches in, right? It's a different world, right? Um, you know, can I fight the same way I did when I was 25? God, no. There's no way. So I got to put in different patches. But as far as my students, I know what their capabilities are and I know what I want them to achieve. So some of it is you have to kind of let them explore and find out what those holes are. And I think that this is where like having specific methodology, and this is why I said like putting limitations on your opponent if they don't realize, like, I can know that it's a problem. And if I tell them that this is a problem in their game, they're going to be like, all right, like, they yeah. might not pay attention. Yeah. It's words, right? And those words don't necessarily have a lot of meaning. It's air. Right. But if I let them experience that problem over and over again, and I say, you know, look, you're sh instead of telling them, like, look, you're struggling with defending, let's say, a takedown. And you're struggling with defending when somebody shoots on you. I don't tell them. I say, look, we're going to go in here. You as the, okay, I want you to shoot at least once for every couple techniques you throw. It's a limitation on what they do, but it's less of a limitation. It's a focus on the type of attacks I want that person to be exposed to. And that type of a limitation allows them to keep re-engaging in that problem over and over again until they realize, wow, I'm not very good at this. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And then they try different things and maybe they work, maybe they don't. And if they get stuck, you can help them, but it, it helps reduce the amount that I try to just be in their shit and just run it for them. Mm -hmm. You can't be the fighter for them. And yeah. I think there's a couple of issues. Some of it has to do with ego. Some of it has to do with, especially older coaches who want to relive their glory days through their fighters. Mm -hmm. They try to put all their knowledge in that fighter and just talk it into them. Yeah. And it doesn't work. No, yeah, and I think one of the main things I, I there's a few critical concepts, um, and you just touched on one actually uh, that led to me taking red pills uh, to totally scrapping probably ninety eight percent of all of the traditional martial arts methodology and probably even most of functional martial arts too, which I I, I have enemies everywhere now. Um, you and me both, brother. Uh, just juju. I, I like. I, actually, I'm not the one that does this. Most I have a new friend that I recently met, 
um, that's been razzing up the jujitsu community, but um, it, there, there's a few red pills. And one of them was uh, you, you touched on uh, adding goals into training. And when we talk about the technical definition of a word, like motor skill, right? Mm-hmm. In everyday speech, we say things like skill, we'll call almost anything a skill. And, and maybe there's a sense in which anything that is skillful looking can be a skill. But when we're talking about a skill in the context of fighting, um, in a motor activity, because that's, that's what that is. Skill is a motor skill can only make sense in the context of a goal directed behavior. Yeah. You cannot say that you have skill with, you, you, you can't say that you have like, so if you get really good at a uh, Pumse um, psychics and they look great, but you don't use it on the bag and you definitely don't use it on an opponent. You could say that you have skill for in the sidekick for Pumse, but that does not mean that you have skill in the sidekick for sparring. So you have to be careful when you say, yeah, I have a good sidekick. Is it functional or does it just look good, right? No, that's a really good example too, because I've changed the way that I teach sidekick. Um, mm-hmm. I, I vastly changed it. I have a whole process now that I teach sidekicks through. Um, and it's a more functional sidekick and it's more in tune with like a cut kick used for distance management. It's in tune with the Nemean fight system as well as a barrier. Um, I almost never teach skip sidekicks anymore. Yeah. They're fairly useless. It's I have, a ba- it's a bad, cr- it's a bad habit. It, it is. It's yeah. a very telegraph movement. And when you look at sparring application, I essentially have two different types of sidekicks I use. Um, I have very little use for the rear leg sidekick. Um, I think it's another telegraph move. There is some application, but I think 95% of the success you're going to have is going to be a front leg sidekick, in my opinion. You need to be, you need to be a pretty high level and know how to mask what you're doing to, to do something like that. There's a time for it, but most of it is going to be front leg. So I have two different types I have. I have a reactionary one, and then I have an aggressive one. The reactionary one comes from what I call the foot forward position, where your back leg, the only movement in it is you bend it down a little bit as you lift your front leg in a bent leg. And I call it the foot forward position, where making contact and doing the kick is secondary to creating a boundary. And I I talk about the two boundary system. This is one of the boundaries. Mm -hmm. Bringing the leg up as a boundary for them to have to bypass. If I have time, I will pivot and extend out and drive the kick into either their side or their thigh. But that is secondary to my primary objective, which is creating a barrier, getting my foot up between them and me, because my leg even bent is longer than their punch. Yep. That is a different objective in the sidekick. If I can deliver a powerful sidekick as a result, as they're moving in, great, if you have time. But I find that having time only occurs maybe 25 to 30% of the time. If you see them coming and I can do it, a lot of times it's more effective to do something else. Mm -hmm. It is a reactionary movement that is designed to keep them from penetrating your guard. The other way is when I use it offensively. Generally, when I use something offensively, the common reaction is for somebody to do what? Move backward. So that means I cannot skip forward into it because it over-telegraphs it. So I do what I call a springing sidekick. It's Once again, terminology is just a term that I came up with for it. It's a very common term if you look at I'll be honest, or it's not a common term, but it's a common technique that I think if you look at most competitive fighters, they all do it. They just don't know they're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And what it is, is as I bring my knee up and I bend, 
my hips will drive forward and I will push off of the back foot. Yeah. But there's yeah. no telegraph to it. But my goal is to cover distance on that sidekick yeah. because I know that as soon as I start moving, they're moving backwards. So I've got to be able to cover several feet without doing a skipping motion. So those are my two primary sidekicks. Now, when you say I have a good sidekick, you talk about function versus form. I can do a form sidekick beautifully based on Pumse, but it wasn't until the last couple of years where I started really defining a practical fighting version of the sidekick mm-hmm. that I started really believing that I really have a good sidekick because mm-hmm. they're two different uses. They're two different things. One of them doesn't change. The other one has a good level of variability. It looks a little bit different every time you use it because you're responding to people that are, you know, that do different things every time you fight. So there's a lot of things going on there, but that's one of my critical issues with really locating where the problem was with how traditional martial artists talk to each other is that we talk to each other about fighting as if we're talking about Punse. And um, we say everything is a skill and we wonder, we wonder to ourselves, oh, he learned the sidekick. His sidekick looks so good. How come he can't use it in sparring? And they're entirely different domains of knowledge, entirely different skills because you have, you have one skill, which is to do a good Pumse that, that looks stable and um, it comes out roughly the same way every time for the, for the, for the purpose of what, what I would call performance art. And I don't use that pejoratively because it's not, I don't think it's pejorative. Um, and then you have another one that is uh, functional and it looks different every time because it's in response to a different threat every time. Totally different, different motor skills, totally different motor skills. And, um, you know, my original question is, and I, the uh, articles, I just looked at it the other day, the article's still up on uh, the, the wordpress.com blog I had like five years ago. The first thing that I thought of was, what does it mean for the way that we structure training as traditional martial artists if producing a sidekick in uh, Pumse and producing a sidekick in sparring are entirely different skills? And to say one is skilled in, in one does not imply they're skilled in another. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I think that the metric for success within Taekwondo, you know, we talked about different branches of Taekwondo. Um, and maybe they need to be separated out. And this is a perfectly good example of why, you know, when you talk about success and you talk about grading somebody within a system based on Pumse, one of the things I find very frustrating for a lot of my students and for students and not just where I'm at now, but throughout the years, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who work really, really hard, but they're never going to have that pretty sidekick. My dad is the best example. My dad's been training for... 45 years, something like that. He is not a naturally athletically inclined person. Mm-hmm. He does not have a pretty sidekick. He does not have pretty forms. They're, you know, he does them, but he just doesn't have that kind of grace. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that kind of flexibility. Yeah. And yet he gets held to this standard that I think is really unfair. You know, and I look at myself coming up through the ranks when I was 16, 17. And I remember, man, for years, even up into my 20s and 30s, people, ooh, ah, look how great that kicking is. Mm-hmm. And I was commonly using the example of these perfect kicks. And I felt like for a lot of them, a lot of it wasn't earned, if that makes sense. 
and a lot of it was just, I was naturally young. I had been doing this movement for a long time. I had natural flexibility. And I feel like that metric based on Pumse makes people feel shitty. Yeah. This is one of the issues I have with it. And the thing is, it's a shitty metric anyway, because like you said, there's no function in it. No, I mean, if you, if you, if, if forms is what you want to do and you, or, or you want to be an, uh, competitive Pumse athlete, which is fine. I like to watch that. Um, people always think I'm being pejorative about this stuff, but they don't, no, they no, don't, no. they don't, they don't, but here's the problem. I should stop qualifying myself because the problem is that these people don't listen to me anyway. So when I qualify that or I write something in an article or I do something like this podcast, they don't listen anyways, but, no. um, but, I, I, but I want to be clear that I, I like it. And I'm like, when I approach oh, yeah. these issues, my my point is not that it sucks. My point is that it is not good for what we want to do if we want to be good at fighting or self-defense. And um, we cannot measure sparring based on Pumse. We have to, we have to, this is, this is a problem I'm working through right now because I don't have all the answers on this. But um, for, for me is when I was an instructor, I had my thoughts. I had a, I knew what a, what a black belt looked like to me, what, what I was expecting out of a black belt and uh, you know, roughly out of the middle ranks and the bottom ranks and the ranks closer to black belt, the, the, the lower and upper belt ranks and all that. So I had my, my thoughts on, on what constituted the, uh, what someone should look like at that level. But where I'm at right now is to actually, to actually try and empty myself of those, those things and to look at, um, to look at more dynamic metrics, like someone's ability to manipulate space, mm -hmm. their ability to score from certain positions, um, uh, blocking and uh, uh, feints and tack, like different things that actually, actually really matter in that are skills in their own right in the context of, of sparring and fighting. What are, what are those, how do we measure those? What do they look like at varying stages of learning and how can we standardize it enough, not entirely, but enough that we could actually have uh, an organization of black belts who can rank people in a reasonably fairly manner up, you know, past first degree black belt, like in a way that's, that's actually fair and not super biased and based on things that have nothing to do with, um, with, with actually fighting. And, you know, we have, we have like Newell's stages of learning, which is a model of learning that constraints led slash ecological dynamics. People have been sort of extending and, and working through a little bit more to apply to sports, but it's still very, very general in the sense that if you tried to apply it to Taekwondo, it's like, it's still really difficult. Like, what does it look like? What are we, this is the problem I had with a lot of like the constraints on approach, like videos that I was watching is it's yeah. Too general. Know, when we talk about yeah. baseball. It, 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 it fits. Right. The problem is that when you talk about something like Taekwondo, there's, I think it's, it's different. Like combat sports are different anyway. Like it's not like baseball where you have a particular skill that you can develop and like throwing a fast pitch. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very different when you start talking about combat sports because there's a lot of other levels and there's a lot of other stuff going on. So it's hard to make it fit on that. Now, I think that in my mind, there's been part of me that's wanted to like consider like maybe we should just 
say fuck it to all those people, create our own organization and get a couple of people. But I realized there's like three people that would join maybe. And I'm like two of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> like it, it, the problem is that like getting people on board is very tough because martial arts is very dogmatic anyway. Mm-hmm. And particularly Taekwondo. Um, and it's very frustrating to me because people don't want to break from what they learn. And part of it is because, you know, God love these grandmasters who came over here and shared their wisdom and shared their experience. And there are these wonderful, warm souls who have really changed lives. But it's almost the detriment of Taekwondo as a developing, uh, as a developing art. Mm-hmm. Because we love them so much, we don't want to ever deviate from what they taught us. Yeah. And so, yeah. how do we get people on board with even doing this in the first place? And having an idea for like what that is, I don't think that's actually that challenging. I know what my students are in terms of level. I know what a brown belt is. I know what a black belt is. I know what a fourth don is. I know exactly what all of these things are. I've been doing this for a long time. And if you have an instructor worth their salt, they should know too. Um, The problem is that we've created a system where when you look at testings within Taekwondo, you have testing sheets and people sit down, their nice little testing sheet, and they have the person in front of them and they go, all right, we're going to look at fundamentals. Look at that front kick, it's head level. Look at that side kick, full extension. Look at that roundhouse kick. He pointed the toe, good for him. And they go down the checklist and then he gets a say like, yeah. man, that front stance, it is the exact amount of inches apart that it should be. It's just wide enough. He yep. bends the knee and they do their checklist and they get to yep. one step and they go, he knew them all. Good job. <laughs> you knew them all. Good job at one steps. <laughs> but seriously, like there's no like there's very little critical application. Like I don't want to point out somebody who I used to train under that this is once again uh, my frustration with people teaching things that they shouldn't. But he had somebody test at a testing, um, and it was his wife, and she was demonstrating techniques, and he was saying, "Look at that. That's a north south choke. Good job." It was not a north-south choke. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I said, okay. Um, uh, you know, it was stuff like that. He was talking about like, this is the correct way you apply it. It's like, look, if you're going to get a mechanical stuff for one steps, that's great. There's a lot of stuff. And some people do, some people don't. But they look at it in terms of like hop keto, which I have my own problems with hop keto. Very, very little of hop keto that gets done anymore is halfway decent. And the best parts of it happen to be the striking. Um, I I think a lot of the wrist lock stuff is very low percentile. It's worth learning. Um, I I think low percentile stuff is things that as you get higher in rank, you should explore. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I talk about on my channel, the percentile principle, if 90% of what you're going to encounter is these techniques, look in in a fight, 90% of what you deal with in a fight is a jab cross Mm -hmm. or some variation of a left, right jab cross hook. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be a left, right, left, right, left, right. 90% 90% of my defense should be somehow, my training should be 90% catered towards that common threat. And then I can start deviating it off into other things. And we talk about like wrist locks, it's like a 10% thing. But anyway, so you go down these check boxes and you get the sparring. You're like, he got in there. If he wins, cool. If he doesn't, eh, good for him. He, he's a good sport. But they're not looking at the things that 
like the further you get down that list on that check sheet, the further you get away from like things that are easy to check boxes on. And a lot of this is because these instructors are not learning that those areas have boxes to check too. They just don't know what they are. And this is the things that we need to start teaching. This is the things that we need to start expecting of our instructors. Uh, When you talk about sparring, I'll be honest, like my students, the way that I judge them is on an overall knowledge. Mm -hmm. I have an idea of what a martial artist as a chodon should be able to achieve. My chodons are very different from other systems because it takes about seven to eight years to get there. And part of that is because I expect them to be able to do a lot more. I expect them to know some combinations. I expect them to know how to do some basic boxing movements. I expect them to know how to do some footwork. I expect them to know how to do some different headwork, not just Taekwondo, the rollback, but roll unders and stuff like that. I expect them to know some basic principles of what they're doing out there. I expect them to be able to do some functional self-defense that is not one-steps. That is shit that you can really run into and is almost always taught wrong in Taekwondo. This is... oh. Self-defense taught in Korean systems gets me so mad, man. If I have to see another bad bear hug escape or bad headlock escape, (laughs) it's terrible. It's bad. And the thing is, the material's out there. But your problem is everybody wants to get creative and show up their little unique twist. Quit trying to reinvent the wheel. There's very effective stuff out there. You know, um, there is a technique for like uh, a full Nelson. And I've seen a lot of just crazy shit of people trying to like kick the knees and stuff. Yep. Look, you want to learn how to escape a full Nelson? Go look up a video by Dean Lister. Put the hands on the forehead, push it back. Like it's not rocket surgery. Quit trying to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So like when you talk about self-defense, understanding the fundamentals of what makes it work and doesn't work, that stuff exists. You don't have to like create new stuff. Quit trying to like show everybody all these fancy things that don't work. Anyway, I'm going to go on pedestal. Yeah, it's... There's no, the problem with, um, you'd mentioned something about uh, like an organization trying to standardize Pumse application. Um, if you, if you want to do application, that's fine. But when you, when you move into that realm and try to do something to get people agree on it, there is no, there is no tether to reality for most people who engage in that. You will yeah. never get them to agree it will never happen i i would i would i would like in you know i don't want to be mean to anyone but i would be like no dude standardize the say stay away from stay away from uh trying to standardize applications or make them more practical let the individual instructors do their own like ian abernethy he's built his own following let those sort of people fill that gap and don't do anything on an organizational level in my opinion like from the cookie yeah for poomsay like here's the thing for poomsay so i have a couple minds on this because poomsay i i I, first of all i ask myself a lot what is the point of poomsay within my organization at this point Mm-hmm. For me, a lot of it is because I'm gonna be honest. If I'm gonna call myself Taekwondo, like, look, I'm a six down in Taekwondo. I feel like people come in and they they expect certain things out of Taekwondo. One of those things is Pumse. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I think that there are some things that you can develop out of it. There's some things that give people a certain comfort in movement. They give you a little bit of focus if they're taught right. I don't think they're often taught there, right. There's there's indirect. There's actually I don't say this very often. Flexibility is a good example. You I, can increase I, yeah. flexibility by doing Pumse. I don't say this very often, but there's some there's some indirect yeah. things it can be helpful for, but they're more like on an attribute level. They're not on a, not on a skill level. 
Yeah, skill, I agree. The way I define skill, no. No, I, I totally agree. I think they're better at developing attributes and skills. I, I completely agree with that. Um, that's why I mentioned flexibility. It's a really good example that when you do a lot of sidekicks through Pumse, it will help the stances to help with that. It helps loosen up your hips and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and you, you get to, um, there's other things like that are not good. So, so there's another, there's, this is more technical, but, um, most of like fighting sports, everything is, is, uh, your, your focus should be on what your opponent's doing. And if you keep your attention on your opponent and, and, and attack them based on what they're doing and let yourself sort of organize on its own to attack based on knowledge you already have, based on training you already have, and uh, not worry consciously about where you are in space and what's going on in your body, that's how you prevent choking. There's a lot of literature on this. This, this is why people in high-level sports choke is because they get... Um, actually too concerned what's going on with their own body, what's going on in their own head instead of focusing on their opponent. And exactly. um, that's called an external focus of attention. And an external focus of attention of instruction and coaching actually produces a big gain in performance and can help you teach people faster instead of trying to tell them what to feel in their body. Pumse keeps your focus in, in on the internal attention. So for beginners, it's not good, but having a greater proprioceptive awareness of your body, uh, even though you don't want to have that, that focus of attention or that locus of attention during a sparring match, having that ability in training to understand where your body is can have indirect attribute transfers that can help you down the line. So it's difficult to measure, but I think it is there. There's evidence of it. And, um, uh, it's difficult to explain, but it, that I would not, if, if I was to, I wouldn't be against teaching Pumse. I don't think I'd want to teach all of them. I'd probably just teach the Udanja Pumse. But um, if I were to do it, I wouldn't start teaching Pumse until they're at whatever it is I've decided is an intermediate level. Yeah. So here's how I teach Pumse right now. Um, first of all, I totally agree with like the well, first of all, I like that you use the word proprioception. It's one of my favorite words. I just think it's really cool. <laughs> I got um, another one for you too, after you're done with this. Um, so yeah, as far as like beginners, I think that the thing that's nice about Pumse for beginners is it kind of helps break people into martial arts to give them a comfort zone because there are some guys who come in, I know they're not going to gain any benefit out of it. Like mm -hmm. there's some guys that come to my sparring class. I don't even try to get them to come on Saturdays. They're they're not going to get anything out of the form stuff. They're not interested. They don't yeah. need it. Right? Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people that teaching forms kind of helps break them into martial arts and it slowly mm -hmm. introduces them to movement. So there's some benefit with that. Um, as far as like analysis on Pumse, the number one reason that I like doing Pumse analysis, like I have my Boonsog area where mm -hmm. it's very similar to what Ian Abernathy does, except I don't pretend to do any research on it. I just make shit up. <laughs> um, like, you know, and maybe he does go into a lot of depth and like does all this analysis and like uh, Ian, like, Ian is making it up too. he, I think he, he basically, he basically said as much on my podcast. However, I will give him credit that he does try to do things in line with the spirit of the principles of what like Itosu used to teach. So it's in, there's a, there's a kinship on a strategic level. I think he understands where they're trying to go with it. And if it yeah. happens to be his own ideology that he happens to support it with documents that look the same, more power to him. I, mm -hmm. I just skip that whole step and say, look, 
what I'm trying to do with it is not try to identify what somebody did long ago or try to bring function back to the forum. What I'm trying to do is puzzle things through. It is the act of doing the puzzle that is the important part to me. Mm -hmm. So for example, it took me a good week to find a justification for in choreo, you do this big motion and you come around and you do this big circle with your hands. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of Pum say I was always taught has something to do with artistry as well. But I said, I want to function on everything. So what the hell could this motion be? And it took me a while to figure out an answer. And I started going, well, what if I use this as like a prayer position choke? And then I trap the arms. I'm like, oh, that works. So the... The act of puzzling out movements was the important aspect. The results almost didn't even matter. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did find is that I do enjoy doing Pumse more now after I have done a Boon Saga on it where I have a different interpretation of it um, because I look at the form in a different way. And yes, some of it has, I look at it like one steps. So like you're not going to have a lot of direct fighting application out of a lot of one steps. But there might be bits and pieces that if I end up in this situation, I think about this arm drag instead of doing this supported middle block. And I think about this as an arm drag where I pull this across. Mm-hmm. Well, of course that has an application. And of course that works. Some things may be less so, but it's the puzzling it out that I find is what matters to me. And this is why I think Boonsong is helpful. And this is why if I talk about doing it like on an organizational level, I almost don't want to give them the answers. I want them to dig into it. I have my own students starting to get in this and go through a form and say, what does this form mean to you? Like, what do you think this technique is? And I stopped giving people answers on this. And I, I mean, I do my videos on it cause it's fun to do, but you know what the funny thing about that is that's actually what the cookie one textbook says. It says it's based on your master and your individual interpretation. And that there's not a standard one, which is different than karate. Cause karate, they try to standardize it on an organizational level. And then the individual instructors will, will add to it. I think cuckoo one, I disagree with why they say it though. So they say it because they also believe that a block is a block and there's nothing much more to it. And if you want to do analysis, they basically just be like, like if your master wants to do analysis, we're not going to get involved. They basically just don't want to be held to any accountability for any answers mm-hmm. as opposed to saying the questioning itself is the development tool. That is a very different philosophy behind it. And this is why, Yes, part of it is because I love to shit on the Kukuan because I'm not a Kukuan fan. But it's also because, and this is why I say they're on the wrong side of like everything. They say even if they do the right things, they do it for the wrong reasons. I think they that 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 particular one is because the Kukuan comes out of the um, the the not bipartisan, but like the unified effort, and you couldn't get any of these Korean masters to agree on anything. So they That's had they had to they had to structure the cookie one it, it was a, it was an act of god to even get the form standardized so which is why they made the take look after the pogway because they inducted two more kwans back in and they didn't have a say and they wanted to have their say so they couldn't just teach their own forms in addition to the pogway so they have to come back and do the take look well, part of it is, um, but they, they didn't change. But they didn't the, change the Yudanjo, which is hilarious. So you yeah. you changed the Tegu, but you didn't change the Yudanjo. <laughs> yeah, and they're trying to like go through and slowly start filtering that stuff out and filtering it with their own like fancy schmancy forms that only really work if you're in competition. I, I, I don't. Like those are for competition. I don't think those are replacements. 
Yeah. That's my understanding of those forms. They're, they're yeah, that's my understanding too, but I, I still, I, I don't know. I feel like. I think if you're going to do that stuff with all the spinning kicks and stuff, you're, you're either, you're either in Kung Fu territory or you've lost yeah, they, the whole point of. I think they have. I think they've yeah. lost the whole point. I think they want to do it because it's, they want, they've gotten to the point where they don't know how to separate out forms anymore because everybody's so cookie cutter and they look you know, how are you going to judge this person's vertical sidekick versus this person? What's the difference? Yeah. So I, I actually one, like that better because that's easier. Like if you want to do, I like the competition aspect. I was like gymnastics, right? It just gets more and more minute, which has no translation to, to actual fighting because it's not about yeah. that. Um, but what I like about that is, and that's one of the reasons why you it's lost the point. First of all, it's not practical. So if you did want to, if you did want to translate it, you can't do all these like 540s. The, the other reason is it gets less accessible. And then the third reason is it's harder to judge than yeah. a regular Pumse. Why make it? I know you're trying to make it spicier, but you have to do these weird steps and stuff that have nothing to do with regular. Well, I traditional think part of it also stepping. ties in with, I, I think part of it ties in with like, like we talked about like board breaking with balsa wood mm-hmm. and demonstrations. There seems to be a tendency that anything that comes out of the Kukuan is very focused on things that look good on TikTok and it's yeah. the promotion of the art with high fly, high fancy, uh, high flying fancy shit. Right? I mean, that goes back to General Choi. Yeah. And I didn't like any Honestly. of that stuff either. Like, I'll yeah. be honest, people like to suck on General Choi's nads, and I don't think much of him as a martial artist, to be honest. No, I don't. I don't think there's so much wrong with him as on a even a morally speaking but like his personality was pretty gross but yeah. just his his understanding of his misapplication of like the laws of thermodynamics his idea of what constituted scientific training and all that stuff never even it never even crossed over into behavioral sciences motor learning motor which which was research that existed at the time yeah, there's it, research it, on that back then he was basically a guy who said i like kicking more so i'm going to take like yeah. I'm it was honest. a branding thing. It was a branding was a guy thing. who didn't understand a lot of karate and yeah. he added more kicking and he, they wanted something that was Korean for a fighting system. Yeah. And that's what they got. And well, what he did set a precedent. I don't think that he did the best. I think that there probably could have found better people. Honestly, I think one of my issues with the Kukuan right now is they could find better people to lead that organization and they could do tremendous things from a leadership standpoint and they chicken out. This is my biggest issue is that I mean, uh, they, they have some people like uh, the issue with the cookie one is, is you're, you're asking them to understand issues that they don't even have interest in exploring. For example, they produce tons of original research and it's all biomechanical and like sociological and none of it <laughs> is methodology. None of it is behavior. Like it's like none of, none of it is anywhere close to where it needs to be to actually improve training. It's all on like, I, I call it technique porn. Like 95% of martial arts content is technique porn. And that's oh. all that martial arts want to watch. And you sometimes yeah. get interesting, like strategy. This is why I have 700 subscribers, but the right. guys who have like choreography and stuff like that, they exactly. have like 16,000 or yeah. 16,000. Yeah. Cause people want martial arts videos, man. Like that's what they want. Like, the number of people who get what I'm doing and are interested in what I'm doing, or same thing with you, it's a very small, small pool. And the thing is, I find a lot of value. Uh, like the people who are looking at what I do and what you do, 
those are people who are getting something that everybody else doesn't get. And yeah. for the people, like I've had people tell me like, I should change how I do my videos. And like, like this one guy who's like a big choreography guy. He was like, he's got a bunch of subscribers. And he was like, yeah, look, you don't change camera angles. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, he's like, tutorials aren't interesting to people. I was like, okay, I, that's fine. I don't need a bunch of subscribers. Well, that's not, that's not true. I, he, I think he's right on the art of actually like, there's another, there's an art to making videos on YouTube and like multiple camera angles. Called I agree. A pattern agree. break. That, that goes back to uh, like cognitive psychology, why that works, things like that. But it's, I, I totally but it's not, that's total bullshit that, that, that people don't like tutorials. People never stop watching tutorials. I wish, I wish people didn't like tutorials so that we could actually have meaningful conversations about like organizational issues in martial arts, training methodology, coaching yeah. philosophy, uh, motivation. The stuff that we do, uh, yeah. they're small. It's a small group of people. And like, it's funny because like the people who watch my channel are pretty fanatical. Like they, I have a very, very strong base of people who they get what I do and they're like, holy crap, I have been looking for this nobody else is doing this right it's yeah. totally yeah like and they're like blown away because nobody else is doing this because it's just not what people produce right and mm-hmm. i i don't think it's impossible for to do it i just don't think honestly i think a lot of guys don't get it and they don't know how to make what we do but that's a whole other conversation i don't think they 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 don't they don't get it they don't they don't understand what we're talking about why it's important and there is a um there's like a cultural system built into traditional martial arts to perpetuate itself where Mm -hmm. we come up with these complex rationales for how Pumse works and how one steps work and how everything fits together and why we do it. And so we have a reason for why we do everything, except the only problem is, is we never checked if those reasons are true. Yeah. Does, and people actually don't on even people, I noticed this. I love Ian Abernethy. He's so farther, far away from what a lot of traditionalists do, like the very, very entrenched traditionalists do. And I, I love his approach. Like he's like, not, he's like, he doesn't crap on people who just want to do sparring or just want to do Pumse or just want to have fun and break a sweat or whatever. So he's like, he also commented on before he makes a specific effort to never, ever say anything negative whenever he interacts with anybody, both online and in person. Yeah. Um, so that's a personal choice of his as well, that he goes, look, if this is what you're into, good for you. But yeah, I, I, I think the direction he's trying to go, he's doing something unique and he's doing mm-hmm. something that I think is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Good for him. I, I like him. I, I yeah. I've never met him. I'd love to do an interview. With yeah. Him at I, I did an interview with him. It's one of my most popular episodes. Um, and you know, I, I did, I did legitimately misunderstand something about his position, but we, I, I was, uh, I had another um, interaction with him the other day on, on one of his things and, um, he, and, they, and I'm not ragging on him, but his, uh, I don't think he understood what I was trying to say. It was about like the flow drills and stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm, uh, I like what this guy's saying because his criticism of one steps and stuff and, and, flow drills like how people usually do them is like really spot on and the level of analysis is like very rare in karate but then in the second part of it he collapses back into this karate mentality where we always have to have an intermediary step between live practice 
and uh, like getting your reps to understand that idea of how to do a movement. And I said, you can design a practice exercise where um, you don't have to map out the contingencies. You just let the person uh, explore in a, in a, in a low um, effort, not let low effort, but like a low pressure environment where the person's unscripted and they're doing what they want to do. So they, so they're actually building their ability to, to like, um, in, to, you know, come up with techniques and solutions on the fly. They're actually building that ability because it's not scripted, but it's safe, right? Instead of scripting it out in a flow drill, you lose your attentions on the wrong place. Cause your attention's on steps and you're not getting, you're not learning that valuable skill of recognizing certain cues inside of a, an unstable environment because you're, you're, you're everything's scripted. And, um, I know that not everyone agrees with me on that, but, but you, you know, yeah, you're, you can, you can disagree you a little bit further that, into this than I do, because I think that there is a value in learning the steps of a technique and certain things. So like of a single technique of a, like a discrete, I, I call it discrete of a discrete technique or a, or a short combination that doesn't require you to necessarily yeah. have to. Um, so like, I'll give an example. Adjust. So like a lot of my one steps are designed to either teach a basic movement of sort of stuff. Like I, I try to have one steps that are all designed for a purpose. So for example, mm-hmm. like my one step number 10, it goes into this outside scissor break, but the goal of this is really to start teaching the rear naked choke that it finishes with. Mm-hmm. And I teach it from a standing position in a static way for a beginner so that I can come back to it later on. And when I show them from a different position, they're like, oh, I remember this, right? One step number 10. And I can build on that position in a very static way so that later on I can come back to it and I don't have to like reinvent the wheel explaining this whole thing. Yeah. Um, but it's, I also think that for certain submissions, they require more of that than I think a roundhouse kick, for example. Yeah. I think you could learn, you could easily learn a roundhouse kick in a live situation with like maybe a little bit, like a tiny bit of instruction, but like external focus of attention of instruction. Like um, you could, de- what, what I would do is I would play around. This is not like something I've codified, but what I would do is actually demonstrate a round kick and, um, but not go into the level of detail I would normally do with like chambers and everything. I would let them see what it looks like. And then I, the, uh, the coaching that I would give them, the cue that I would give them is um is actually really just the the rules of of most things it's like here's the surface area we use the most so what i want you to do is i want you to hit the top part of the foot or the bottom part of the shin and i want you to hit that hit that to the hogu or to the chest um that, that's that's how you successfully execute this technique this is how you get a point right so like points yeah, and, and like one of the things that i've done that. for like roundhouse kicks is like i'll put a barrier that they have to go up and over so that they don't try to like come up the wrong way. And so that it forces them to pivot and stuff like that. Yeah. Like letting them learn by those type of obstacles. is That's, great. that's fine. Um, that what you're doing there is you're using natural objects or natural barriers in the environment to, to take advantage of what's called um, uh, self-organization. And they're using their sensory, their natural sensory to organize their movement in a way that doesn't hit those barriers and that kind of forces them into doing it correctly. The only criticism, I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but the only criticism I have of it is you're teaching them, cool, you're not doing the instruction thing, but you're teaching them to do it uh, in a situation that's that like those barriers aren't going to be there when they're sparring. And the, there, there will be some transfer of technique, but that there's going to be there's going to be a lot of regress when you get into 
uh, an, so, un, an unstable environment because I agree. I, I agree. I, I want to clarify that. Like, here's the thing, like, this is where training methodology gets complex. And I think that yeah, this is where a lot of instructors kind of fall short because a lot of instructors, when they look at training methodology, they say, I want to have one type of training methodology and I want it to fit everybody. But different people have different things that they need to develop and they have different things that they're working on. They learn differently. And so one of the reasons that I have a lot of variations in the way that I train people, you know, I, last time I was on here, we talked about the scaling from, you know, basics to Pumse to one steps to pad drills, to heavy bag, to shadow boxing, to, you know, uh, limited sparring to free spark, like having grades and that adding in like different things as well. One of the benefits of doing that kind of grading is that you move people along the scale back and forth based on where they need to be fixed or where that I, I want to see them develop, or if I have a particular goal that I want to achieve. And with the Nemean fight system, this is one of the things that's very nice about it is that it's made the goals very like crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Whereas in sparring, they're not always. And so like, this is a good example. We talk about that roundhouse kick. There are a lot of different types of roundhouse kicks you can throw. So that roundhouse kick where you go up and over might be necessary if I'm teaching them to throw a roundhouse kick at somebody who checks leg kicks a lot. Because you time it differently where instead of just catching the leg, you come up and you drop down onto it. Mm -hmm. I might be doing that because I'm trying to teach them a particular movement that they're going to need for a particular thing. So I can't just say, I can show them the technique or I can say, I'm going to have you do this drill. I'm going to have somebody check your kicks. You know what I'm saying? Like let them piece it together. Yes. And so this is where I'm saying like training methodology. I I get what you're saying. I just think that it's easy as in, I, I like the fact that at least you're thinking about training methodology and that you're really focused on trying to find different ways to get there. But I really feel like most instructors, they find a way of training people and that's it. Yeah, they're done. And, and especially with, like like I said, the dogmatic version of like martial arts, Taekwondo in particular, we have our boxes and everything in martial arts for them fits within these boxes. You have basics, flexibility, forms, one steps, sparring, breaking, done. Yep. Like... And the thing is, like, I get they, they want they wonder they wonder why their attrition rate's so bad. Yeah, and, and here's the thing that's crazy too: like, all these people who are teaching Taekwondo that are unwilling to break from what has existed before. They want to teach the same kids' class and the same structure that they learn because this is how they think they make money. Like, if anything has become abundantly clear by the growth of jujitsu, yep, is that that model is not the only way of doing things like this whole, you don't have to do sparring. If you get away from sparring, you'll have more students who last longer. Mm-hmm. No, they don't last longer. They la- they, they don't retain for very long. You keep them for a year or two and then they're gone. Let's be honest. Who really keeps a school running? Is it the white belts who come and go, or is it the people who have been there for 15 years? <clears throat> and so this model that we've gotten into in Taekwondo and the training methodology that we've gotten into in Taekwondo is not the only way of doing it. And I think that what we're starting to find is that this jujitsu model and some of these other models that are existing, you have a longer 
you have a student who lasts longer. They're a more dedicated student and you don't, it's less frustrating for us as instructors. So we can like maintain our passion and things like that. And the more that your school reputation grows and you get away from these testings and stuff like that, like you don't need that stuff to be successful. And the thing is, if you run a good program, you can charge more for it. Yeah. This is a hobby horse of mine. I studied it in graduate school and I've since read several, several works on it is um, uh, motivation and and drive. Mm -hmm. And um, instructors are asked backwards, understanding motivation. And they say, I call them boomer cringe statements. They say the dumbest, the absolute anti-scientific dumbest shit I have ever heard about uh, adults and kids and stuff about what, what drives them. Like you have to have stickers and belts and stuff. Cause unfortunately in this society, you have to have these external things to get them to do that. I'm like, you know, you know what? You know that's how much just I've not been, true. Yeah. Not I've true. been told this by a lot of people that yeah. that's what gives you a successful program. Um, a lot of people have told me that that is what motivates kids. And I don't think that's true at all. No. Uh, I, I don't have a, I, I don't have a master's degree, but what I do have is a little bit of an understanding of how people tick mm-hmm. and I'm not an expert by any sense. You know, I got some books you might like to read. They're not, they're not, um, they're not long, but they're really, they're really insightful. And um, I wrote an article a long time ago when I first started to get into the motor learning stuff, because motivation is very closely related to learning. And um, the, the way that uh, that traditional old guard martial arts teachers taught disincentivizes the development of, of true outstanding skill. One of those things is punishing mistakes. And um, even when it's not, because they think that if they punish, if they punish uh, a mistake that the person's less likely to make it, not true. But what they're actually doing is when you don't let, when you don't let adults or students make mistakes, um, unpunished is you don't, don't let experiment. them, you don't let them experiment. And you yeah. see, you understand that intuitively, but these old guard guys, um, don't get that. And they think they're, they think that they're revolutionary and, um, they think that they're cool when they do that. Well, and I'm like, no, you, you that. kill their motivate. You train, you, you make them anxious and you kill their training motivation and you yeah. remove their ability to explore and find ways to do things in their own way. And I think that, yeah, you absolutely hit that nail on the head. Um, I think a lot of people who are not even old school people want to do things the old school way because they Mm -hmm. think there's a power in it. Yeah. And it's just not so. Like, and this is where I get into conversations with people a lot that it's very funny to me because, you know, I still people see people who believe in body hardening that spending (laughs) half an hour kicking a tree or punching a bucket of sand is going to make you a tougher fighter. You watch too much anime. Yeah. And that's what it is. They watch these old 80s movies. They watch anime movies. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, that is not going to make you a better fighter. First of all, like I talk a lot about like time management in martial arts is a really big aspect of it. Yeah. So first of all, the idea of body hardening a lot, when you talk about skills and development that is going to actually make you a functional fighter, like it's a waste of time anyway. But there's this kind of like mentality that I think a lot of guys have where they think that they just want to show that how tough they are. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this when I was in the Marines, I see a lot of it in martial arts that people do like that whole no pain, no gain mentality is a really big part of it. And it's tied in with like 
these people who put kids through these like brutal stretching routines where yep. like you see them pushing out the legs and stuff like that. And they're hurting these kids. They're screaming. It's damage. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that is not how you develop flexibility. Like, no. if anything, you're going to seriously hurt this kid. Hurt them, yeah. And that it's and psychological trauma, that, too. Like, torturing a kid, it doesn't, like you said, motivation. Yeah. Um, like, there's so many negatives. But there's people who, like, they cling to it because this is their impression of what martial arts is. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who believe this stuff. And, and unfortunately, guys tend to be more guilty of it. Um I can't tell you how many students I've had come in the door that like their impression of what fighting is, is so off the charts. Yep. It's crazy to me, but unfortunately people don't want to deviate because that's what they've been taught. That's what they believe. And there's nothing worse than somebody who has an idea in their head that is unshakable. Oh yeah. Um, and they want you to recognize it too. They're not, yeah, gonna, they, they're not going to sign up until you they validate want to admire it. it. They, want, yeah, they want you to admire it. They, this is a, this is an unbelted person walking into your dojong that wants to be validated for their grand idea. Yeah. Bitch, I am the master. What are you talking about? I'm telling you that that's come, not true. Yeah. I had <laughs> a guy no come experience. in one time. So this is a funny story. This, this is a guy that came into my school that um, uh, he came with a friend and this okay. guy before class is telling me like, Man, I get into fights all the time. I don't even defend. I just, I just go after them. I go great, I bro. I was expecting to be, to be like impressed, and I was like, "That's really dumb." Yeah. <laughs> Some and people like funny. the BS. Yeah. And what's funny is that, like, I think he was expecting me to be impressed, but then, like, I think that he came in there thinking he was going to be a hot shit, right? Yeah. Because every guy knows how to fight, right? Like, if you ask any yeah. guy if they can fight, the answer is always yes. They're all yeah. They all know how to fight. And after being there and he did like half a training session and I, you know, I'm, I'm super gentle with new guys when they come yeah. in there. I always spar them yeah. first just to kind of like, I just mm -hmm. let them move and kind of see what they can do. Yeah. And he was willing to do like some pad drills and stuff. But when it came to sparring, he chickened out all of a sudden. He didn't want to spar anybody. Ah, yeah. And I was like, I wonder if maybe like, he was like, Oh, I thought I was going to come in here and be a tough shit. And then I see yeah. like, these guys are not out Got, here. Guys that talk like that, 10 times out of 10, they will chicken out on the real stuff. They kind of actually know. Yeah. They want to cheat. They want to get the recognition without the, the, yeah. without the actual it's the funny to me. skill. Yeah, I had a, we had a couple guys when I was teaching. They'll even walk. They'll walk into a place. One of the places I taught at um, was like obviously like a kid's thing. And um, he came in there to, 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 to inquire about questions and he uh you know talked the program director's ear off and everything and he talked to me a little bit before he left he's talking about like he's trying to like tell us how he was going to go about getting his black belt and like trying to tell us how things are going to work and i'm like that's not, that's not how it works here dude and he's he you know talking himself up i'm like but like what what experience do you have and he's like you know street fighting or whatever and i'm like oh my <laughs> gosh you're you're a freaking trope come to life you just you came out you just came out of a Reddit thread. And Look, what's uh, great about that is that those guys, they generally, they, get, they almost they actually have never have fought before. Program. Look, if you have a decent program, those guys, those guys figure it out real quick. Yeah. Well, he didn't sign up. It was too expensive for a poser to, 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 um, that's, that's one of the things about expensive programs is a lot of the posers don't have money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they won't sign up to those. 
you get you what you get is people that are actually interested in their self-development that are willing to pay that money people that are more like you know late 20s 30s maybe early 40s they, they want to get in shape and learn a new skill and they work and you know they're family people and they're just normal and um they're honest people but you do get these and they're usually young guys but occasionally you get these middle middle-aged ones that'll talk your ear off they just you they tell you things when somebody, when they, when their their first move in the conversation is to start building themselves up, you know you're dealing with a like a pathological person, and uh, you should basically not trust anything they say at that, at that point. I'm gonna be honest. I love chatting to those people because I love. It is funny. It's fun, but because you could get them dancing all over the place, and you could just have them so inconsistent on themselves, and them not even realize how inconsistent they are. And you're just laughing. So I don't like to like burden conversations with jargon a whole lot. um, Generally speaking, but sometimes like generally if I use jargon, it's because it's the right word. Right. But sometimes you got to pull rank on a sucker. But if I get somebody that I don't want to actually fight this guy, but this guy's talking a lot. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of nice to illustrate a point and (laughs) throwing a lot of jargon at them to make them realize like, Yep. And what's fun is if you do it right, you go, you acknowledge them as this expert and then you use terms and you go, wow, you must know an awful lot. And then yeah. you start talking about like, Hey, what do you do when this occurs? And then you start throwing like crazy scenarios at them. Yep. And you watch them just, I love the answers Word. I get back because yeah. they will try to bullshit their way through it. And yeah. that is best to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and they're good at, you, you can like in a normal social situation, they can get away with that stuff because like in, in everyday life, you can, you can say something plausible and nobody would doubt that, you know, yeah. but in martial arts is so specific. It's so domain specific that, yeah. that they think they're getting away with it, but it's like, no, that's, that never happened. There's zero chance that happened. And the fun thing is like, and this is where, so this is where sometimes I just kind of have fun with people is that yeah. I don't even tell them they're wrong. I let them keep going. I'm like, well, what about this then? So if I'll like, I'll ask them so like, what do you do when you're attacking somebody and they shoot a reactive shot? What do you do to help with the response time on it? And they'll give me some crazy bullshit answer. And then I'll ask them to elaborate on it and I'll go, Oh, wow. I've never thought about that. How do you take this into account? And then I watch it just keep going on it. And Oh man. Are you friends with Thomas Husky on Facebook? Cause he, he had a guy. Uh, Not on Facebook, but I, I subscribed to his YouTube channel. Well, you can't, he has a video up. He probably doesn't realize it's still up, but I go and look at it once in a while because it's so good. When he was teaching um, a Taekwondo program at his, uh, his alma mater, he coached there for years after he graduated. And um, he had this, uh, this kid, one of these, he's one of those, these type of people, right? That, that sort of, whatever you want to call it, that sort of personality type that was a BSer that wants to come in and um, be somebody and like strut his knowledge that he got from DVDs from like YMAA. So his oh, guy, yeah. this guy's particular flavor of that he settled on was Kung Fu. And uh, he decided he was going to come to a Taekwondo class to, to, uh, to uh, flex his Kung Fu story last time when we were on. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, there's actual video. He actually agreed because he was disrupting the whole class and he agreed to spar and these people almost never do. So it's a treat with, it's a treat when they do. And Thomas just knocked him out, like actually knocked him out. Yeah, and, and he didn't even do it on that. purpose. The guy just was so inept that Thomas stepped off and did like a yeah, slow hook kick. Does. And he just went down. 
<laughs> like, because you were talking about that, like how he's like, yeah, I'll just knock a dude out. And I was like, because I was, yeah. I remember like I've had people that like, they talk a lot. And what I try to do is slowly work them so that they'll come out and spar with me. Yeah. And oh my God, it's 11 o'clock. So we got to wrap this up. So I'm going to finish up this story. Okay. We'll yeah, for sure. And no problem. Like, I remember there was this guy that used to go to the bar years ago. And I think I told this story last time I was on, but he was a guy that like, he had a reputation for being a badass, right? Mm-hmm. He, you know, and everybody talked about how tough he was and stuff like that. And I invited him to come out and spar. And I like, I'm tuning this kid up, like just no effort whatsoever. I'm giving him 50% and I'm just tagging him over and over and over again. Not hard, just, and afterwards, like I asked him, like, what'd you think? Like, I'd love to get your feedback. And this guy's trying to give me feedback back about like all these things that I could do. And I'm just <laughs> like, man, I just, I'm loving you right now. You are amazing. You, you're you a but meme. You're a meme. I'm going to tell the boys about this over beers in like, another I, context. I'll be honest. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that like, I, I've always kind of like hoped more people would try to come out on the mats. And I've only ever had one person ever come out on the mats though. And the guy was actually pretty cool. Like he was a guy who wrestled and he was like, look, I just wanted to like, get a, like, see what I could do. I yeah. was like, all right. So I rolled him and I got him in a rear naked choke in like 20 seconds. Right. Yeah. But he was super chill. He had been drinking and his buddies were there. They all videotaped it. And I, that's <laughs> the only time I've ever had that happen. And but yeah. the, the funny thing is, so I teach out of the back of Whirly Ball. And so people drink there all the time. I'm like waiting for somebody to come out on the mats, but Maybe I'm either doing something too right or too wrong that they don't like. That's eh, well, not the, even worth the people that say those things, they're they're doing something that um, I don't know if it's a psychological term, but I've heard it a lot. It's a term I like to use. They're engaging in self mythology, and mm-hmm. um, the the whole purpose of it is to you know peacock, you know, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Um, that that's the whole. It's to build. They want social clout. They're not interested in testing it, right? They're not, that's not the discourse yeah, level that's true. that they're on. That's true. They want to build, they want to build a mythology around themselves so that they, so that their peers look at them a certain way and yeah. treat them a certain way. And they're not interested in um their martial arts is one of those things that they often will pull in. There's like there's kind of a predictable amount. I I, I knew a, I know we want to wrap up, but the, I knew a guy that I used to work with in security. He had um he had a military background, but he, he almost certainly was lying about that. He was saying he was like a Navy medic who got yeah. attached to a force reconnaissance Marine unit. And then, um, he was, he was, he would tell stories of, uh, uh, just how much he fights he got into and people couldn't knock him out and he would kill people, not kill people, but like he would beat the crap out of them and never get in trouble. And he, at one point he told me a story. This is hilarious too, because he forgot that he was in his own story when he told me this and, and um, <laughs> he told me, he, t- he said something about, yeah, these Krav Maga guys in the Israel. He's like, he's like, uh, my buddy told me, you know, these guys, cause they stand on the corner and they don't even have machine guns. The, uh, they just have their arms cause they can kill you with their bare hands. He says this one guy, he could, th- he could throw this knife and he could, and the knife would hit you and it would, it would bounce like through you, like almost like a shuriken, but it would, it, but what he was describing was like physically impossible. So I was like, yeah, no, they don't, they suck. He's like, and he like changed his story immediately. And I'm like, what the (laughs) heck just happened? I did. This guy just told me something. He expected me to believe his truth. 
I immediately challenged it and then he immediately changed it. I'm like, what reality do you live in, dude? I love that shit, man. I love <laughs> and I'd never done that before either, too, because I knew he was lying, but it was entertaining. Like it was long shifts. Like, you know, I was eight hours. I was stuck with them. There's nobody there. It's late yeah. at night. And um, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I just asked like stupid questions. And he was, he loved it and I loved it. And it was entertaining. But I was like, no, they don't. Cause I can't suffer. Um, I like for me, if you know me, um, I can't suffer crop and God to be spoken of in a positive light. Ever. <laughs> and I, so I just, it just, I was like, no, they don't. They suck. Oh, <laughs> uh, we got to end on that. No, man. Right, man. <laughs> that was great though. Uh, that's a good final note. I can't stand for crop and God to be spoken of in a positive light. I, like it. <laughs> I cannot suffer it anywhere in any context. <laughs> All right, man. Well, look, I'm going to get going. This was a lot of fun to do. We got to do this every once in a while. I like the idea of doing this every like six months or so, just doing a catch up. But uh, yeah. you and I are going to chat more later anyway. So yeah. it was a good yeah. time. Uh, All right, man. Thanks for coming on. I'll, uh, I'll let you go. All right. Thanks. Take it easy. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.